0: this is Jocko podcast number 360 with Dave Burke and me Jocko Willink good evening Dave good evening the secretary of the Navy takes pleasure in presenting the Navy commendation medal to lieutenant Thomas Coppell for services set forth in the following citation for heroic achievement as a pilot of jet aircraft while attached to fighter squadron 142 embarked in USS Constellation On 14 January 1970, Lieutenant Coppell flew the wing aircraft of a two-plane attack mission in Southeast Asia. Despite heavy anti-aircraft fire in the area, he placed all of his bombs on target, resulting in five enemy trucks destroyed and many secondary explosions and many enemy casualties his professional determination in spite of heavy anti-aircraft fire and adverse weather conditions resulted in a substantial damage to the enemy's logistics efforts lieutenant Coppell's superb airmanship courage and devotion to duty reflected great credit upon himself and were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service the combat distinguishing device is authorized for the secretary MF Weisner vice-admiral United States Navy And that is a citation That represents the types of missions that were flown by Navy fighters day after day Night after night week after week month after month Year after year those were the type of missions that resulted in Solid Battle damage to the enemy, but also resulted in 532 aircraft lost in combat, 401 aviators killed, 64 missing, 179 captured who became prisoners of war. 75 of those aircraft that were shot down were F 4 Phantoms. These missions were flown by pilots who took incredible risks to get the job done and eventually Pilots that rewrote the book on air-to-air combat and laid the foundation for how fighter pilots are trained to this very day And it's an honor to have one of these pilots here with us tonight That pilot in fact is from the opening award citation Tom Copel. Tom thanks for coming down. I uh, appreciate you coming out here anyway, I know we got dave he
1: he's and, to keep me honest
0: <laughs> well he's there, always done that <laughs> he's always excited the few times I've had some pilots on without having dave on right? he's not happy about it <laughs> so uh we got him here and I guess let's let's just kind of start from the beginning and how you grew up and where you came from so you were you were born in uh In Queens. Is that
1: that right? Yeah. Jamaica Hospital. Huge hospital in Queens. But we lived just over the city line in a new development that uh, the house was built and my parents moved in with a brand new baby. And uh, And this was
0: 19 what? 41. So you're pre-war.
1: Yeah, and my dad was not drafted because of me. <laughs> he was uh, an insurance underwriter in the financial district of, insurance district of downtown, downtown uh, Manhattan, uh, Nassau Street and those places down there. How And, much, and, a, and a nice guy, I have to say.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. How, how much, um, you know, so you're born in 1941, prob- I'm assuming before the war started, before... Pearl Harbor? I was,
1: yeah, August and Pearl Harbor was in December.
0: Okay. Yeah. Do you, so as you're growing up, is there any part of World War II that you remember?
1: I remember my mother telling me that the war in Japan was over. I don't remember her telling me that the war in Europe was over. Uh, um, the, on the other hand, since... I was four years old and had a brand-new sister, they sort of left me alone. And I would go down to the corner, believe it or not, on what was then, I guess it probably still is, Hillside Avenue, and I used to see low-boy trucks uh, with uh, Grumman, uh, I assume they were F-6 uh, fighters with the wings removed. They put the fuselage and then the wings on the side. I think the engines and the propellers were on them but obviously, they were on their way to South Pacific. And they asked your mother, what the heck is that? And you know, she would say, oh, they're yeah, going to war and stuff like that. So uh, I, I assume that was 1944. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was three years old, sitting on the curb. And that's the first I ever remember of any of that. But they told me that both Grumman and Republic were <clears throat> out in the island. At that time, I guess it was
0: you know, well, farms. Did that leave an impression on you, seeing the fighters? I mean, first of, oh, of all, yeah. I don't remember anything until I was about 17, I think. So <laughs> you remembering stuff at three is pretty impressive. Um, but, I, I, but did I, you think, oh, these are these are warplanes going to war? Did yeah. that make any sense to you? Oh,
1: yes. Oh, yes. It was, but I never expected that I would be a guy who would fly them or anything like that. And the other thing I, I remember about flying machines was, uh, was not – combat or war or anything like that was the fact that uh, Idlewild that became JFK when they expanded it the airport was uh, seeing the, uh, the uh, DC-7Bs coming in from Europe in bad weather. They used the east-west runway and uh, streaming fire out of the back of the off the top of the wings. And how the heck is that? So I finally in my grown-up days Talked to a guy who was a retired naval aviator, P. three, So he's semi. I said, Dennis, why, why didn't you uh, want to be a carrier guy? Many engines, Tom. Oh, oh, sorry about that. But at any rate, he was a flight engineer on, on DC7Bs, and he said that's because a flight engineer goes full rich, and flames, <laughs> roaring out the back, and especially in foggy weather when they're.
0: You know, oh, so that's what you'd be saved. Yeah, and
1: I wanted to do that. That's really <laughs> hot stuff, you know. But, uh, but, and uh, well, and jumping ahead, I guess. But uh, why did I want to go with? I wanted. to, My father said I graduated from college. My dad said, "What are you going to do?" And I said. I don't know. He said, why don't you see if one of the services would teach you how to fly? I said, I don't take guys like me. He said, they sure
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you get to college, what was growing up like? So did you grow up there just outside the city?
1: Yeah. And uh, I was just a kid. Uh, um Uh, a four-year-old kid down on the corner of Hillside (laughs) Avenue
0: by yourself, which is cool.
1: Yeah. But that was different time, I think, or something like, maybe there were as many monsters around then as there are now, but nobody talked about or acted that way. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I got a bike, you know, it was, then it was really on. Yeah. (laughs) I was never there.
0: (laughs) Were you, how'd you do in school? Did you like school? Terrible.
1: I hated school. (laughs) I hated school. I was a, My wife loves to tease me that uh, I was such a terrible little monster that the one of the classrooms that I I was in in grade school had a it was the two classrooms at the end of the hallway and then a connecting room between the two. She put me in the connecting room with a door that opened so I could see the blackboard, but I was in the room with the door open about (laughs) ten inches wide.
0: Were you just a hyperactive kid?
1: I I think so, and uh, bored. Uh, with all of that I could read before I was bre- I could read when I was four. So they uh, were always buying me books. So uh, Stuff like that.
0: So you were smart, but bored. I guess I don't know. If what about sure. sports? Were you into sports at all?
1: Uh, yeah, because I, I, I was the big biggest kid and uh, played f- touch football in high school, which got I'm sorry in grade school Eighth, seventh and eighth grade, and you know, it gets a little rough. At least it did then. So, but I never got hurt or anything like that. And then when I got to high school, I played uh, played football and played first team.
0: Uh, at, at what year did you graduate high school? 59. So you grew up in like the iconic That's 50s. Right. That's right. When you see those movies, are you just— yeah, I think it's awful. Why is it awful?
1: <laughs> the clothes that they wear and the, the nostalgia, the cars— We real, I do today are death traps, Mm. but they they bring
0: huge money. These cars in the did you which one did you have? You must have had one. Did you have one? I I guess maybe not in the city.
1: No, it's not the city. It was real suburbs, wooden houses on little bitty, little bitty lots. So, did you have a car? Uh, No, I. You know what? I never owned a car until uh, I was uh, in flying school in Big Spring, Texas. Yeah, Big Spring, Texas. Uh, Never had a need of one. Got around. Back in the 50s, early 60s, you stick out your thumb, you got a ride. Um, People were different then, somehow or other. I don't really understand how that is. But I went all over the the eastern half of the United States with my phone. I went everywhere. (laughs) And never worried about getting back or anything like that. But um, one time, the worst time I ever had doing that was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in western Pennsylvania. I was there for 12 hours.
0: (laughs) What? What?
1: (laughs) No one would pick me up. I have no idea why. Maybe I'd look scowly or something. I don't
0: know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have been a great hitchhiker if it comes down to look scowly. (laughs) I would definitely have some issues. So you're growing up in the iconic 50s. How uh, do those movies miss the mark, hit the mark? I mean, how are they? The 50s movies. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, I, frankly, I don't remember.
1: Um, I don't remember what movies you might be talking about. What
0: about Elvis? Oh, you remember? I
1: thought it was awful. You thought Elvis was <laughs> awful. I personally did. I guess my sisters thought otherwise. I had three younger sisters. But I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard of so that's what I thought it. Anyway.
0: So what were you listening to?
1: I have to admit <laughs> classical music <laughs> 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 my uh, minor story my wife when before we were married, somehow or other I introduced her to the fact that I listened mostly to classical music and she went home she tells me now mm-hmm. or actually after we were married, I said, this guy is a little bit weird. a suspect even, for sure. This is the classical music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've, Rimsky, Korsakov, Scheherazade that everybody knows. I was really intrigued by that. So, so I listened to classical music and still do today. So whatever...
0: So the rock and roll thing was not your scene?
1: Not until the California, Br- the British invasion in and, uh, and California. And that was altogether different. Okay, uh, we'll
0: get there. Uh, <laughs> so you, you, you graduate from high school, 1959. So
1: right. you lived through the Korean War as well. I remember it well. I remember being in Boy Scout camp when they announced the uh, armistice uh, had uh, just been signed that morning or whenever it was. Oh, it was That was a big deal. everybody cheered.
0: But you still didn't get the uh, the impression that that was something that you might do one day?
1: No, no. There was no military uh, tradition in the family at all, except for um, a grand uncle, maximum nice guy who was a graduate of the same college as Donald Trump graduated, still exists in New York State. Military academy, I think it's called, and he, but he graduated in 1936 or something like that, and he was part of the last combat cavalry regiment in the United States Army, Dang. and it was disbanded, I think, in 1939 as the storm clouds were gathering, and they disbanded that unit. But that was that was officers with real swords and two horses each and all the rest of everything else about that. Uh, but that was a combat unit, not a display mm-hmm. unit, and it was the last one. He wound up in Iceland for the duration of the war, deriding the whole experience. But I only realized in my grown-up days that if Hitler had won the Battle of Britain, Iceland was next, mm-hmm. and uh, they probably, no doubt, knew that, but they all... I went to a reunion with him at one point, and uh, they all derided their experience there and so forth. But they, they would have been the first to be killed in the first super German raid, no doubt, on, on
0: Iceland to flatten the place. Yeah, we used um, to get a similar thing in the SEAL teams where you'd get some platoons would be going over to Iraq or Afghanistan, and some other platoons would be going to like Guam or some, somewhere where there's no war going on. And of course, all the guys that are, get sent to Guam are just angry that they can't be in Iraq or Afghanistan. And meanwhile, the guys in Iraq or Afghanistan are freezing or, or, or sweating to death or they're getting shot at or whatever. So Yeah, they use real bullets yeah, here and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what, you know, that's what people join the, the SEAL teams for. And, yeah. and uh, apparently the horse cavalry as well. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that, it was for real, swords and the whole deal with uh, with those guys. And he was a wonderful man, wonderful man. Um, when sisters were born, I got farmed out with him twice in the summertime. And uh, uh, he worked in uh, lower New York State, Binghamton and Elmira, those places around there. And he had grand aunts who had a truncated farm there. And, uh he farmed me out with right. them. You're just slave labor. <laughs> and I had for the fun. Summertime. I had kid fun uh, being a kid with cornfields and ponds and stuff like that all over the place there. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: uh, and then where'd you end up, so where'd you end up going to college?
1: I went to Albright College in Reading, PA. Uh, a Commuter for me. A very small college at that time. Eight hundred and fifty students at that time, and uh, now it's about. Twelve or thirteen hundred, maybe a little bit more than that. But uh, wonderful teachers there, absolutely wonderful, especially the men. But one notable woman uh, who uh, was a pacifist of all things, but she was absolutely a wonderful woman. And
0: uh, but what made what, what? How come she left such a big impression on you?
1: Because uh, she was so straight. I'd never met a woman quite like that. She was straightforward and thoughtful and. Aggressive. Uh, I like a woman who is my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tells you what's on her mind immediately, and she was that way, I guess. So.
0: And, and she was a professor there.
1: Yeah, she was, was. What uh, was she teaching? English, uh, English and speech, and uh, you got to be. You got. She changed you uh, with her professional abilities and so forth. And I remember sitting there arguing with her. Silently. Uh, No, uh, a ten-minute lecture about using the atomic bomb in Japan. She was opposed to that. And um, I don't think she had read notably or widely enough about all that. And uh, I had at that point, and uh, was opposed to that. But still, I, I thought she was really great. Yeah, point-of-view uh, mm-hmm. sort of thing and
0: what, what were you studying
1: I was a, a, a econ major not business economics and minor in history <coughs> and uh, had some fabulous teachers uh, there uh, a guy named Wilbur Gingrich who was a genuinely world-famous uh, Greek scholar and biblical scholar um, a couple of other guys that nobody ever heard of but a wonderful man and uh, uh, a crazy guy who taught loved to teach <laughs> european and russian history and i took him for russian don't take him for god's sakes he, you you've got a d out of that and He'll blither you and you can't write fast enough. And his class, his name was, no, uh, Gingrich was the, uh, the uh, biblical scholar, a Greek scholar. Um, can you believe it? his name escapes me? But at, at any rate, Kistler. And uh, they said, uh, you'll get a D out of his class because you can't write fast enough and stuff like that. But he, he was something, he smoked uh, continuously, <laughs> well, and always had the window open, and the butts went out the window, and he torch up another one. <laughs> but he was he was really something. And what you what you get in the class? B. You got all B. all of six in the class.
0: So at some point you uh, you got more into school than you were when you were in grammar school or whatever. Yeah,
1: no, because it had smart people who were smarter than I was, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, How would you put it? My parents weren't really educated, if you will. My mother had, had a college degree from NYU, but I think she skated as much as she could. <laughs> and my And my dad, they kicked him out of uh, grade school. Um, yeah, out of school when he was uh, uh, after 10th uh, grade, I think, uh, because he was done. They did that at that time in the 20s. So... Uh, both of them wanted me to be educated and so forth. So that it, was, it was interesting to be in the company of genuinely educated people. And I, I didn't catch fire at first. By the time I was a junior, I understood that this is really an, an experience. You can get uh, interesting things out of these people. And by the time I was a senior, I didn't want to leave because uh, you get to talk as a grown-up with these grown-ups who listen to you and then tell you things you had never conceived of before
0: and stuff like that. So I had a good time in college until they kicked me out. (laughs) At what point did you start looking at the military as a legitimate option for you?
1: Uh, Not until I was about to graduate and uh, back in the good old days. Uh, my, my dad worked he was a New Yorker New Yorker New Yorker but he got a job in Redding Pennsylvania and it was a shock to all of us I didn't want to leave the school I was in and I was going to parochials. No. so
0: this is back in high school
1: yeah yeah. I got was it. two years into Chaminade High School on Long Island which is by entrance exams and tuition and, and I, I liked it there I was doing a little bit better a little bit better but uh, I didn't want to leave, and uh, he came home and said he'd been offered a job in Reading, Pennsylvania. Where is that? <laughs> and so we were New Yorkers and eh? New Yorkers. <laughs> I can do the accent too. And of course, when you get to Pennsylvania, the kids make endless fun of you because of your accent and stuff. But at any rate. Um, where was I in this? Um,
0: We're just trying to figure out at what point did you yeah. think the military so might be an option?
1: I, I could uh, go downtown Reading and go up the fire fire tower staircase and plop in the uh, in a chair in my dad's office, and he said, "So what are you going to do? You're going to graduate here." And I said, "I don't know." He said, the, uh, "Have you considered maybe the government would teach you how to fly in one of the services?" And I. Ah, they don't take guys like me. He said, they surely do. 2020s and uh, good shape, nothing wrong with it. So I, I applied to the Navy guy, and he, uh, he, <laughs> he was an embarrassment. Uh, overweight, feet up on the desk, um, didn't seem to care about anything. I filled out all his paperwork, and he never got back to me. Went to the Air Force guy, and he was close to his uh, his quota, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and he drove me around. Oh yeah. To you have to go here and fill out these. I'll, I'll help you fill out the form and so. so. I did that, and the Air Force took me. So, uh, but uh, the uh, uh, what was the question? Uh, well,
0: that uh, that was yeah. the question. The question yeah. was, how did you first get so the my idea dad, my dad, my dad said see if you can learn how to fly.
1: And he didn't know how to fly.
0: <laughs> so did they have like a contract that made you a pilot? Was that part of the enlistment process?
1: Um, they, they, when they said, uh, we like everything you do. Now you have to fill out a, uh, um, a preference sheet, and you can put whatever you like in there. We suggest this list of stuff over here, and then you make them one, two, and three choices. I said, well, I, I want to be a pilot because that's what I'm doing this whole thing for. He said, well, most people put in navigator for second and then something like, I don't know, auxiliary aviation or something like that. And I said, well, that's not why I'm here. So I put pilot, 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 one, two, three. <laughs> Funny thing, too, the B-52 squadron I was later in was a guy from my college class. And I said, Danny, what are you doing here as a navigator? He said, well, they told me put pilot first, (laughs) navigator second. (laughs) I said, you don't wear glasses or anything. (laughs) He said, well, that's what they took me as. I said, well, I didn't want to rub it in, so I just let let it alone. So what was your indoctrination to the Air Force then? I went to their OCS in in, uh, San Antonio. It's not at Lackland. It's... I think they call it the Medina base. Mm-hmm. It's nearby, and I went through that. That's three months.
0: Was it was it a shock to your system? Were you wondering why the hell you did this? Well, or I was fortunate.
1: There were several um, uh, enlisted, previous enlisted guys there, and I, I thought they know the ropes. Do whatever they do. So that's what I did. And I, I, and then they said, if you uh, f- uh, play a musical instrument put your name on this list. And I said, oh, the guy told me don't volunteer for anything <laughs> before I went in. So I found out that the, the guy was running this thing. He loves to have live music for any parades that he has. And if you can play a musical, get your name on I did. So there What were, mi-
0: instrument did you play?
1: I play the trumpet and cornet. Okay. I can play baritone. I can play alto horn or French horn or any of those. But I dropped that, you know, for a long time, midlife. I'm back into it now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you got out of everything. (laughs) You straightened up your your digs and your bed and whatnot. And uh, when the Saturday morning inspection happened, we had rehearsal. That was they, if you will, all knew that. So,
0: so there. this is nineteen what? Nineteen sixty-three? No, no, uh,
1: sixty-five. Okay. January sixty-five. Because see, I graduated. I graduated in August because I was having too much fun. That by that point in in college, I found this. You ought to take that professor's history course. He's really interesting, and you should take comparative economic systems because you should do that. And I didn't have enough. Credits, I had two, if you needed 150, I had 175. But you don't have enough in your major or in your minor. You had you took that course and you got a good grade. And, and at any rate, so I wound up graduating in August. But um, how do you get into that? So, oh, it's, yeah. so it's
0: 1965. So you're starting to hear about Vietnam. You guys must be talking about no, Vietnam. No,
1: no. Because that happened in January of 65 yeah. in summer of 64 I worked through college at a small uh, summer stock playhouse because I was in the drama club in college and um, you meet this guy and meet that guy and so forth and uh, all very legitimate if you will good people not these sorts of flaky dumb people that you might think of when you think of Theater sort of people, <laughs> you know. And I had a mentor by this point, a guy from New York, who was old enough to be my father. And he said, um, "When you uh, graduate, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I have this paperwork in to go to the Air Force to fly and and stuff." And uh, he said, "They're looking for a guy like you at a theater in Baltimore that I am going to." He said. And, uh, should I mention you to them? And I, well, okay. So he called me in about a week or so, and he said, they want 15 minutes of drama and 15 minutes of, com- of comedy. If you can do that, they want to talk to you. So I went to a woman in the, the, in the Summer Stock Company, Grace Chapman, wonderful woman. And I said, can you help me? And she did. I said, oh, I am going to do it like this. And she said, no, 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 we're going to do it this way and so forth so uh, rehearsed it with her have to memorize everything of course did all that and uh, went down to Baltimore stood up on the stage lights boom
0: and they got what a few people are watching you to judge you
1: the two bosses
0: the two bosses and they're thinking of giving you some kind of a role or
1: no, they, they, they had a, a program there where you actually worked, as it in were, in the union deal. Uh, the, the actors' union is called Actors' Equity. You work as a local jobber, and it's called.
0: This is doing, and, doing what? What's your job as a job? Well, when
1: well, they've got you, they've got you by the short hairs, as they say, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that you, you will get roles. Maybe a minor, maybe just a walk-on for this one, and maybe something serious. I got one very nice role out of it. Uh, I was the uh, elder son in Galileo Mm. by Bertolt Brecht, a notable European communist. (laughs) 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 But uh, a good director uh, there uh, for that. John Marley, the guy who a lot of people, he was a workhorse. Um, Hollywood movie actor. He uh, he was the guy in bed with a horse uh, during the, the first Godfather, the Godfather. film. He, that was John Marley, and a nice man as well. Anyway, um,
0: so wait. So this was in the summertime. You were doing this uh,
1: summer stock in a barn, believe it or not, in Pennsylvania. And then Jerry Richards was a New York guy, old enough to be my dad. Said he was going to this equity company in Baltimore, relatively new, called Center Stage, it's still active today. And was I interested? Did you have another thing in mind? And I went back and I said to my mother in passing, I was thinking about this. She said, do what you have to do. All right. So uh, I hitchhiked (laughs) once again. (laughs) To Baltimore. To Baltimore. And how long
0: did you stay in Baltimore for?
1: Only until uh, I got a big fat envelope in the mail from DOD, and, (laughs) and it said, we will teach you to fly if you want to. And, of course, the draft was there, and I had already called the draft board, and I said, where am I? And they said, we can't tell you by the law, but I'll tell you this. You're close to the front of the drawer. I remember that very well. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. I wonder what to do about this. And I went to a fellow guy who was in the same position I was in the company. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, do what I did. Tell them you like boys, not girls. (laughs) I said, that's not true. He said, it's not true with me either. But it got me right. They go, go sit on the bench over there. And they ask you, do you really like boys rather than girls? And, and he, he said, J- I just said, that's right, I do. And that was the end of that. And I got off. I thought, oh, boy, that may be good advice some ways, but I thought somewhere down the road, yeah. somebody's going to drag that out 40 years from now. And and so I, was, I didn't want to do that. And lo and behold, I get this big, fat envelope in the mail. I go to Jerry Richards, my mentor. And I said, what should I do? And he said, Uh, He was a combat veteran of World War II, Uh, a dog-faced soldier, had funny stories to tell about being on a line of march, hot, sweaty, and an Italian farmer going by with a wooden tank on a little wagon, pulled by a horse, and the second lieutenant or whoever he was said, stay away from that tank. We all knew it was full of wine. or grape juice anyway, and he said, we got two-thirds of the line through there, and somebody went,
2: boom, boom, boom,
1: and that was it, everything collapsed. Anyway, super nice guy and whatnot. I went to Jerry and I said, what should I do about this? And he said, well, you always come back to this, but you never get another chance to do that. So yeah. so I signed on the dotted line and I went into, went into the Air Force like the second of January, 1975 nineteen sixty-five, S- six, yeah, y- you said 60, you yeah you pardon, sixty-five. That's right, sixty-five.
0: So, so yeah, so that early part of Vietnam. Because I always think in the way the news kind of worked, it was the battle of the I Drang Valley in nineteen sixty-five, where really hit the news, and right. there was casualties, and yeah. it seemed like the escalation really kind of started. Yeah. Um, so you, you get done with the. The Officer Candidate School, and then is it you get, you get your slot to flight school?
1: Right. And uh, that was at Webb Air Force Base in West Texas, at Big Spring, Texas. Uh, pretty much of a barren place just east of the big, big uh, oil fields, but there were plenty of oil wells around where I was, well, around Big Spring. But the big oil fields around Midland and uh, um, Odessa, Texas, Um, Permian Basin it's called and there had been at least one crash at uh, Big Spring Texas they made a very big deal out of and rightly so the guy was confused about stars and oil fields every every drilling not their drilling rig but every pumping deal has its own light bulb on it and he got confused and rolled over uh, yeah so really a shame but I learned to fly there and uh, then went to the... Uh,
0: How was flight school?
1: <sighs> it was tough for me at first because I didn't know a wing from a tail, uh, an aileron from a, an elevator, anything. And uh, about half those guys had private licenses. At least half of them had private licenses. And... Uh, and um, a couple of them had commercial multi-engines. So They're just walking through the thing, and but uh, I was slow to get going. But when I got into the second half, which was the T thirty-eight at that time, uh, I did very well. But uh, but it's like a baseball trying to, baseball player trying to bring his average up second half of the season. You know, <laughs> so your grade point average is uh, was a, was a problem for me and. Uh, I wound up getting a B 52 assignment. Uh, my roommates got C 130s, which was a very desirable deal if you didn't want to get shot at. Turned out to be very foolish. and uh, Because you, in C 130, you got shot at in, in the Vietnam War. And uh, my, one of my roommates got uh, Air Defense Command F 104, which was considered to be creme de la creme until I got. Assigned to the F-4. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but first you had to do your B-52 time.
1: Right. The G model in Rome, New York. Was a Wonderful place. Wonderful people there. I liked everything about it except sitting alert. <laughs> Awful.
0: So this is now, what, 1966 or something? Yeah, that's right. And you're assigned to the B-52 uh, squadron in Rome, New York.
1: Yeah. Uh, very de- heavily decorated squadron from World War II. I can remember the, num- the number 488 or something like that, Eighth Air Force. Um, I had the first guy they put me with was a, a guy of shorter stature, and I think he had a problem about that. And I was six feet tall and whatnot. And all the way down to him saying. I said to him, that's not so. He said, it is so, and you shut up because I'm a major and you're just a goddamn first lieutenant.
2: Yeah.
1: Whoa, okay. But at any rate, he fired me, so to speak, basically. He, he didn't want to fly with me anymore because I was, I, I may have made better landings than he did because the next guy I got was a family man and, and we got along like brothers and
0: it was great. So the one lead pilot or whatever is it called, the lead pilot, the major? Yeah. He didn't like flying with you. Right. Well, he didn't like your attitude or something. And he didn't like my attitude either. So he got rid of you. Right. But then you just moved to another guy?
1: Yeah. Well, they gave me another they guy. Did, you don't have any, any choice about it. But we, we got along. We just had fun every day.
0: And, uh, and what's the deal with sitting alert?
1: Well, they, they did it uh, two different ways. Um, the, at, at Rome, New York, where I was, Uh, They had eight airplanes on alert at any one time. Um, All the airplanes that I was on had two Hound Dog standoff missiles with uh, thermonuclear weapons in them. The the Mark 28 at that time, I don't think it's classified anymore, uh, but uh, the highest yield on those, uh, single uh, warhead per, and uh, there was a uh, pop on there. Um, and then uh, four thermonuclear weapons in the bomb bay and then four quail decoy missiles in the bomb bay and uh, the targets for the ones i was on well i was on a a mission that was downtown moscow believe it or not and uh and land in turkey i think all of the ones i was on were land in turkey because you were out of fuel by then you were fueled south of uh, Iceland and uh, and then went in and then turned straight south and landed on a, pretty much on an abandoned airfield in central turkey and you were instructed to get fuel by jerry can this is silly and we knew it <laughs> you, Jerry can was not enough. He had eight J-57s and a B-52, and the H model had modified J-57s that were fan jet engines. Uh, silly. You'd never get enough fuel to uh, (laughs) refuel the thing to fly it anywhere.
0: So, I mean, was that just because once you flew over Moscow and dropped nuclear weapons, it wouldn't really matter where you were getting? What was the...
1: Pretty much because you're assuming that the world would be a conflagration and uh, would be pretty much of a mess at that point. You would... Truly a thermonuclear war would have finished by that time, I guess. Uh, and everything would be would be an awful, awful
0: mess. And are you sitting, like, are the, are the weapons loaded on the aircraft, just Absol- sitting there stage?
1: Absolutely, positively, with an armed guard on every airplane, walking around underneath every airplane 24 hours a day. Was
0: there any events that would heighten your readiness? They would have practice alerts
1: that could happen at any time. The... Um, uh, the SAC World Strategic Air Command worldwide would call on an alert and every SAC base on the planet, even in obscure places, would do what they were told to do. And they basically had three commands. one, to man the airplanes and start them stay in place. Second, start the airplanes and taxi down the runway, just to motivate the, the flying machines, and third would be a real launch. Actually, there were two kinds of launches, launch to a holding point short of total commitment or four, total commitment from minute one. So, um, obviously, the third and fourth never happened with me. They would uh, The alert was at Rome, New York, at Griffiths Air Force Base, which is where I was, and wonderful people there, too, Uh, was seven days. You had seven days on, and the rules were half your time on alert you had free. But it didn't really work out that way because you didn't get away from the base until, in this case, Thursday. 12 o'clock or something like that, and you lost half the day. And then they would schedule you for a flight, maybe Monday night at 8 p.m. So Monday was sort of gone because you had to sleep because you were gonna fly for 12 hours. You took off at 8 p.m., you're gonna land at 8 o'clock Tuesday morning. All those missions, those training missions, were eight hours. And uh, but I didn't uh, training missions were sort of fun and interesting. I spent a lot of time with my hands in my lap, but mm, nevertheless, uh, they're interesting. And you went all over the United States, all over the United States, uh, doing those things, and all and a lot of them were at low level because that's what you would do in the case of a nuclear war.
0: You oh, go, it's a low level attack.
1: Oh yes, oh, the B 52s were all. Um, Assigned low altitude, like how low? Two hundred feet. Yeah. That's
0: get underneath radar.
1: Right. Yeah. As low as you want to go is what I was told. at I said how? I said this is a poker deck route, and it's is published at four hundred feet. How low are we gonna, talking about here? If we have actually do have a war, as low as you want to go. So, I said one point that you have charts that were. Accurate, accurate, and classified, obviously, but uh, I said to one of the the guys who worked in the vault, you had to do target study while you were on alert, and I said, you show telephone poles here. Here I am, the co-pilot, looking for the next turn. Can I count those telephone poles? Yes, you can whoa, they were all done by U-2 or by satellite. I think the satellites were just starting at that time. So I said, so it would be the 28th telephone pole. I can turn left to 030. Yep. Um, anyway, so you, uh, what was the question? Where were the heck were we? Well, it's just
0: it's very interesting to hear, like, sort of what your status was Yeah, as a pilot, and I I actually asked you what level of alert. What's the highest level of alert you are? Because obviously you missed the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's right. Because I'm sure that would have been a very high alert. Maybe they even. Do you think they got airborne for that?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't remember ever asking anybody. I don't. But I don't think that that happened. No.
0: And that had to be a little bit of a strange. Weight on your shoulders to think about, uh, especially with your background with your English teacher that didn't like the atomic bombs oh. dropped on right. Japan. Right. and here you are with a mission tasking that if you get this mission, you're gonna fly and annihilate, you know, basically the world. <laughs> well, I have
1: a little bit of a funny story about about exactly here. We hear how the,
0: that turns into a funny story. I like it, that.
1: In the G and the H. We had the gunner up front, and the gun—the guns that were in the tail. So these were, are the G
0: and H models of the B-52.
1: Right, and up to that, the gunner rode in the tail, and uh, if he were to bail out, he would jettison his turret, which weighed something like two thousand pounds. Everything—his ammunition and his and his fifty calibers and uh, everything short of the seat. He sat on a chemical toilet back there, incidentally, but it, and then he would bail out. He did not have an injection seat. He just It was right in front of his toes, and he just stepped forward or leaned forward, and out he went with a conventional parachute. Anyway, um, the, uh, the gunner and the G and the H models up front, and the cockpit arrangement is different in the G and the H than it was in the earlier up to the F model, B-52. The G's no longer exist. They they went with the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. The, the G's got pictures of them getting their wings cut off that they took airborne pictures of all that, so complied sh- with the Russians. Show the Soviets? Yeah. But at any rate, the G and the H internally are the same, and they have, and the, the ECM Officer and the gunner ride facing backwards, and uh, uh, no now I was going oh yeah. So on your charts when you do your first day of alert target study, it's the same charts every time. The gunners he's sitting across the table from. Him. I said, what's it, what oh you have L P B N that means something and E. E35 that means something uh, across the route of flight and I said LPBO it's in the same lettering stencil same ink same everything I said what's LPBO he said last point of bailout I said that's over Finland. He said, Exactly right. I'm not going to anybody's nuclear war. I'm leaving <laughs> over Finland. I'm taking the seat pack with me with the twenty two rifle, the sleeping bag, and everything. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but it never happened. So he was he was a E six enlisted guy and nice family man and everything else. But he said, I'm not going to nuclear war, you nuts.
0: <laughs> so how long did you do this job for?
1: A year. Well, including the the rag, if you will, in in Merced, California, a year and a half. But then I got the big fat envelope that said, "Here is your inter-service transfer. If you want to do this, you you
0: can do." And this. that's what you had applied for, right? And why did you try and do an inter-service transfer to the Navy? Because I didn't want two two sides to that. And there's popping your
1: peas again there. Um, I didn't want to sit alert anymore. Um, I didn't like s- riding around with my hands in my lap. <laughs> um, and going w- way back, I had this idea in the back of my head. My first cross-country in the T-37 out of Webb Air Force Base, we stopped somewhere, I can't remember. And there were two Navy guys there wearing golf shirts underneath there Flight suits. And through the open door, there were two A4s parked out there, and they said something like USS Independence or USS, who knows, Forrestal or who knows what. I thought, isn't that hot stuff? These guys can go to sea with those things and go, I don't know, anywhere they want. That's hot. And then I saw the back of a proceedings magazine proceedings used to be magazine size then it became smaller format but it showed an a4 looking over the a4 shoulder like the wingman or something like that looking over and he's on short final
0: for a carrier and i thought that's hot shit <laughs> <laughs> so that did it and was it hard to put in that inner service transfer it was it pretty straightforward?
1: Well, they bounced it back at me. So, oh no, I mean, format's wrong. It has to be this way and that way, mm-hmm. and have to do that. And I said, fine. Well, what do you want us to do? I said, well, you tell me it's wrong. I did it according to what was in the publications library. You do it. I said, well, I guess we have to. And they did. And then I signed everything the second time, and then away it went.
0: And you got straight into the pilot pipeline.
1: Well, no, I was... You know, when you're a military officer, you are an officer of the United States. You're not an Air Force officer or a Navy officer or even an officer of the... There's a land survey and mapping service. They have military uniforms. You are an officer of the United States. So it isn't like you change services, you change uniforms and you change terminology and you change verbiage and the name of your grade changes from first lieutenant to lieutenant junior grade but um, they can put you anywhere they want. You can be a, a SEAL who's a lieutenant commander and they can say, guess what? We want you in the embassy in Tunisia and it's only going to be six months, but you'll be wearing civilian clothes, and you'll be responsible for thus and so on, thus and so on. And that can do that, because remember, you're an, uh, appointed by the president of the United States. You're going to serve in that capacity. But So that's what happens with an inter-service transfer. And I was told that you, when they, they, you make the transfer, it's basically a, a, a long table meeting of senior service, I'll, I have a doc who wants to come over to the Air Force, and you have a, a junior lieutenant who wants to go Navy. I'll swap you for those two. Okay, that's fine. we can do that, and so forth and so forth. And that's the way it's done, but every six months or something like that. And it probably goes on right now. I don't know. But, but, but you ended up with the pilot slot somehow. Yeah. Well, I had orders to King to uh, Kingsville, Corpus Christi and uh, wound up standing in a guy's office, nice guy, with the lieutenant commander, a um, few of the parking ramp with S2s, stoofs parked behind him, piston engine, anti-submarine airplanes. It was a training facility for them. And a couple of lieutenant commanders standing over here and me standing right here in front of his desk. And he said, what are we going to do with you? I said, I I don't know. I just have these orders. He said, you flew jets? I said, yeah. He said, well, then we send you to Kingsville. What should we do with him? (laughs) What happens if he can't get (laughs) aboard? I thought, I will get (laughs) aboard. So what's Kingsville? Uh, Kingsville, two advanced uh, training bases. I think there is Beville still
3: active. Beville's close. Still Kingsville.
1: Yeah, and Kingsville is bigger than ever, and the Navy advanced at that time. there were F9s there, and I went over to Kingsville and introduced myself and dropped my orders on the table and so to speak, and all very nice. And I looked out the window, and they had these <clears throat> ancient airplanes, F9s, cream War vintage. Oh boy. What ancient equipment here. There was more fun to fly than you can imagine. You put the power up all the way and leave it there. And it's like your brother's MG with a little four-cylinder engine in it. it was so much fun to drive but underpowered. Same way. Fun, fun, fun to fly. It was truly a flying airplane with a, with a wing airfoil wing, and everything else. And you fly, the, get into the Phantom, and you find, no, this is a machine. This now, is different. Now,
0: now, at this point, you're hearing about Vietnam. Vietnam's now is right? 19, what, oh, yeah. 1967? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now you know what. You're in the pipeline. Your goal is to be a fighter pilot. You know that that pipeline yeah. ends up in Vietnam. Yeah.
1: So your detailer calls you on the whole phone in the BOQ. And I, was, I think I was a lieutenant by this point. Maybe not senior lieutenant junior grade anyway, two rooms and um, and private bath and it, you were in Kingsville in those? Uh, I, they, was, they I was, yeah. Big solid BOQs there, very nice and uh, what not but you, when you took a shower the the water was so bad, the ground water, <laughs> it smelled like ancient sauerkraut, remember that? It was awful. <laughs> At any rate. Um, uh, where, where so we at, at
0: what point do you get assigned to go to the, the RAG for F-4? Uh, or well, the,
1: your detailer calls you on the whole phone, of all things. And you know, put Tom Coppel on. He's in room B-7. The guy comes in. Hey, Tommy, you got a phone call. It's my detailer again. He said, Tom, we really want you in the A-6. That's just for you. Same as the B-52. You have experience with offsets and everything else. It's going to be perfect. I said, I don't want that, Bob. You know that. Call me back next. And a series of phone calls. The last one was the same thing. Tom, you're perfect for the A6. By now, you probably looked around, talked around about it. That's a heck of an airplane. Yeah, I know, Bob. I still want to fly the F4. <sighs> okay. Let me, th- let me think about it. And about a week later, a guy called me up and said, you have orders in, up there at Admin, and Big Spring at that, I'm sorry, uh, Kingsville at that time. <laughs> was nowhere land and uh, I did not have a car. I said, it's up at the other end of the main drag that parallel hangar area. <laughs> walk, 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 walk. I said, well, first of all, I said, Fred, what do my orders say? I oh, wouldn't look at them. It's none of my business. Oh. <laughs> Gentlemen don't read each other's mail. So I walk up there and here I had F-4, the mirror. So. And the F-4,
0: what year did the F-4 come out? What year was that? Uh,
1: I think the first prototype flew in 58. Is that right? I
3: th- that sounds about right. <laughs> just, just real quick. All right. <laughs> so you're, you go through all Air Force training. You're a B-52 guy, and then you CQ in the F-9? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, uh. I mean, they're worried that you can't even get aboard, right? And yeah, I mean, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So what was that like? Well, I
1: guess my FCLP was okay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, when I fir- first time out FCLP, I think this is Paul me. I can do this and so <laughs> forth. And the guy comes back and he says, "Well, you were this and you were this and you were." I thought that's amazing. How do you know that? <laughs> and so forth. And um, you know, that's LSOs. They grade you mm-hmm. accurately, and their club. Dave knows this. Um,
3: I was in LSO. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs>
1: they, it's hard to get into their club, right. and and you can't really dispute what they tell you. And after every SC landing, he's in your ready room saying, well, you started out high, and, and so forth and so forth.
0: So you guys have now both thrown – I, I was wondering if I missed something, but the term get aboard, <laughs> what does this mean? Expand on it.
1: There are guys, I guess, who just say, you crazy? I'm not going to do that. I thought I didn't realize you had to do that. Or I guess that's what happens. Or they're just so, what in the, used to be called, he, the guy's a plumber and he can't do it. Uh, so, so get we,
0: aboard means you actually qualify in the aircraft? Yeah, get aboard is just a language for can you land on the ship.
3: Right. And Got it. Okay, most that's what people I was can. missing. Yeah. I didn't, I, that's I, what I was missing. Yeah, and it's hard. It's just it's. It's the phrase of, Hey, is this guy gonna be able to get aboard? Meaning can he land his plane on the yeah. boat? Right. What happens I think every now and then is you got guys who go through the whole pipeline. Carry calls is the last thing you do in training right. and, uh, traditionally and you could be great at all these things. But if you can't get aboard, you're no good to the Navy. That's because right. Because we land on boats. Uh, and so Oh yeah, we're you to P threes or uh, Atle- yeah, and fighters, exactly. Right. So So is that
0: what happens? You get sent to P threes?
3: You get i mean now you get sent to, you know, P threes, you go to um, helicopters, if you can't get aboard in a jet, they're going to send you to some other non-tactical platform. That's true.
0: I, I've been talking about this lately. It seems like um, there's certain skill sets of people. Some people just can't get through. Like, a, like for instance, when I was going through SEAL training, I, I, I would say about one out of every hundred guys, they're, they're, just, they're just not going to be able to shoot a pistol well. And they might actually not make it through the training because they can't shoot a pistol. They might be an athlete, they might be great at everything, they might be smart, they can't shoot a pistol. Uh, close quarters combat. There's a bunch of strict little things that you have to follow. And some people, I think that number's about four out of every hundred. This is in, in, in basic SEAL training or SEAL qualification training that, they're just not gonna get it. They're just, there's not bad people, they do a lot of other things well, but they just can't do that thing. And it sounds like occasionally someone that can fly a plane, someone that can land it on the airfield, someone that can do the turns they need to do in the sky, someone that understands the dynamics of it, but they can't get aboard, they can't land on that aircraft carrier. Right. And then it doesn't matter.
1: That's yeah. right. No, it does matter because um, I, I, you were a Top Gun guy, but I was a, uh, an instructor at Meridian at the end of my career. And I don't remember exactly how or what, but the guy said to me in the friendliest, collegial way, if if your students can't cut it, it's not their fault, it's your fault. Because if this guy is not uh, the sort of guy we want for tailhook, we'll find a place for him. And he'll be valuable to the Navy in so, the Air Force is the other way around. It always felt to me like they were trying to get rid of you. <laughs> they were always rotten to you, except for one guy who wound up being a – I think I put this in my list of stuff. He wound up being a four-star general in NATO and Europe. And, mm-hmm. uh, he he I maybe was – Personal uh, self-esteem or self-confidence or something like that. And he was very quiet and instructive. In T 38s and the Air Force Advanced, very laid back. He'd say, "Tom, uh, come left a little bit more," mm-hmm. or "Tom, let me show you," and he did. And that was his last. And he wouldn't talk to me for ten minutes and stuff like that. But but not because he didn't want to; he just let you go until you made him. No, no, no. Let me show you something and stuff like that. So, but at any rate, they always acted like they wanted to get rid of worse in the Navy. If the kid doesn't make it, he's been qualified by us in sixteen different ways. If he if he quits or wants to quit, it's your fault, not his, and so forth. We'll find a place for him in helos, and you have two guys there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So,
0: uh, where the heck were we? So, so then, so then you do get your orders. You get your F four orders, and I guess I kicked this whole uh, tangent off just by the F four at the time was just like the ultimate
1: beast, the monster. Yeah, that's what I always called it. And then uh, I went went mirror, and I remembered this like it was yesterday. Check in, do all that going to find a place in the BOQ, forget it. <laughs> I said, no chance, Tom. <laughs> so I had to go find a place to live off base and uh, whatnot. But at any rate, uh, VF-121 was the F-4 rag at that time and was the uh, eastward end of the runway there. And uh, I uh, had a couple of steps going through a narrow gate that was always open and an F-4 looking at you're looking at the tail up the pipes of this thing and I thought oh my god I forgot how this is a monster I forgot and uh, they had Marines working on them because they were going to uh, Da Nang or Chulai to get shot full of holes and eventually abandoned over, over there and they, they took the radars out and put lead noses in them uh, at that place and basically went over the whole thing and they had Marine uh, Marines mechs working on them there but I thought oh my God, look at that thing and so that's, that's the thing and then I walked to the end of the hangar and uh, there were two F-4s taking the runway and that you, uh, the Vf 121 at that time was at that end of the east end of the runway and 99% of the time the you took off to the west and two F-4s rolled out on the runway it was night and early morning low coastal clouds and fog just like here, this is at Miramar, and uh, they ran up, and then they rolled, and they firewalled, and they went to burner, and then they disappeared into the mist. I thought, oh my God, I am in over my head. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn to do it, and uh, get good at it, I got pretty good at it. although. You know, there's a the thing about LSOs, since you're here.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so the LSO is the grader, yeah. basically? That's the landing signal officer. You grade every, every landing. That's right.
1: Okay. And you have to call you know, Meatball and State uh, for every landing, VFR or IFR or anything else. And he's the guy, when you look up and they say one peak is worth 10,000 scans, scanning your panel, Instrument flying is something that's hard to understand if you haven't done it. You cannot make a mistake or you're going to be killed and wreck the airplane. There no mistakes allowed in I, genuine IFR and especially carrier IFR. But uh, he's the guy who says to you, uh, you say, uh, 2400 Clara. And he says to you, that means I don't see the meatball. And really, you don't, can't see the deck either. And he says to you, you're looking great, babe. Keep it coming. <laughs>
0: and you just have to trust what he's saying. Right. Because you can't see visually because of fog or whatever?
1: Well, one second later or maybe a half second later, you see the deck. Got and then it. you're aboard. Uh, he'll say that to you at a half mile. The radar controller says half mile, call a ball or execute a wave off. And you take a second peek. And nothing there. You see a, a white glow uh, from the deck. But if you're on center line and on glide slope, you're going to be okay. And Just he's don't
0: tracking that via radar? or he's Yeah. Because he can't
1: see you either, right? Yeah. what they, The ship does It's different now, I think, but it's, it's essentially sort of the same. You have a, the F-4 had a radar reflector on the nose gear, and the ship's track-while-scan radar would lock onto that receiver. Otherwise, it might lock onto the wingtip. And that will keep you on, you if you flying accurately, the way you're supposed to, everything will be, when you break out, you'll be on center line, on glide slope with a center of pole, And basically, don't, don't, with a fuel In black oil ship, Constellation was a black, in America before they were both black oil ships, they have a stack gas problem. But actually, with a nuclear-powered carrier, you have the burble that comes around, the wind coming around the island. I'm told you can feel that too, but with a a fossil-powered ship, you had a lot of burble that...
0: So you're hitting turbulence, basically, right as you're there. coming to land.
1: Yeah, a, a tenth of a mile from touchdown. <laughs> yeah. One time I had my mask loose, and you could smell it. <laughs> I, my mask wasn't tight enough. What was right. you, do you remember your first carrier landing? <laughs> yeah, I do. How'd it go? <laughs> I thought that was pretty great. That's, that's all I remember. Th- I remember being on the catapult, though. On It was Randolph with hydraulic cats. It was one of the only ships left with hydraulic cats. They'd all been converted to steam when they, when they put the angled deck on them. These old Essex, uh, and Yorktown, class ships. They put steam catapults in them, but they put some of them. They put hydraulic cats, and Randolph was still. It was a wonderful, clean, well-run ship. I thought. What a little I know, the captain was very friendly to me because I was an oddball. I was a coming across. Air Force officer, he had been told, come on up on the bridge. It was very nice. At any rate, um, sitting there, getting ready to get on the hydraulic cats on Randolph, I remember thinking to myself, I don't have to be doing this. (laughs) I remember thinking, if I say I don't want to do this, they'll stop right now. I must be crazy. And I did it. Boom.
0: But, Was that your first cat launch?
1: Yeah. And they told you over and over again, these are hydraulic cats. Bob said, you're a pal and instructor. And he said, now, make sure you're all the way back. Make sure you got your elbow locked because it's a hell of a bang. And you get on your first 15, 20 feet, you get 80% of your acceleration right up front, and then you sort of just trundle down the rest of the way. So I was ready, boy. I was all the way back in the seat, head back, and elbow locked. I didn't think about my knees. When that thing went off, I, my knees were up here somewhere. <laughs> but the F9, I think the FA18 is the same way. You can take the, the shot hands off and then grab the stick as soon as you're out over the water. (laughs) and (laughs) So I still had my hand on the pole, but I had to get my knees back down (laughs) on the puddles. So is the
0: hydraulic (laughs) harder to launch than the steam because the steam is more gradual buildup or something?
1: Yeah, the steam is smoother, and it's a continuous uh, flow, and I guess the new electric cats are that way as well. They're supposed to be even better, I guess. I don't know how they would be, but I guess they would be.
0: Now, this is the time, like, Dan Peterson, you guys are working, like, almost getting in this air-to-air combat where you're training at a level that really you hadn't trained before at. Or or the pilots hadn't been training this way where we're going hard against each other all the time. Uh, Yes and no. In that,
1: that was the beginning of the – I said in my talking to Dave via email, I said, my only claim to fame here – being unusual, if you will, is the fact that I was there when what became Top Gun started. I was there. Sam Leeds, who's in Dan Peterson's book, mm-hmm. came into various ready rooms. And VF-121 had about three or four of them. I can't even remember because they took the whole hangar. And, and they came in there and said, we're going to do this. oh, a lot of F-4s and some F-8s too were getting shot down by MiG-17s mostly. But RA-5Cs were getting shot down by MiG-21s because they MiG-21 RA-5C would be cruising at, say, 600 knots taking pictures or going to his next spot to take pictures. And the MiG-21 would come downhill from 30,000, 35,000 at 1.2, 1.4 or something like that and launch a Soviet, what was the B model, they had stolen from us uh, Sidewinder and shoot down the RA-5C that was the big deal don't let your RA-5C RA- a- if you're the escort I was lots of times if you're the escort of the RA-5C don't let him get you have to keep looking back and up there and be prepared to turn into him for a head-on with a Sparrow but at any rate um, what was the question
0: right well there? I'm just trying to <laughs> gather that uh, eventually what I want to know is how well prepared you were when you went on deployment from a pilot. So like, I was in the SEAL teams. We would shoot so many rounds through our guns. Yeah. We would do so many immediate ax drills. We would do so many uh drills and tr- so much training yeah. that by the time we went overseas, I felt really good. Yeah, I felt really good and I, I'm trying to figure out where you guys would feel the first time you get on your first combat mission. Well, there's nothing fee- quite
1: like getting shot at the first time. You do remember that. Yeah. But I remember the time they, they they had some sort of an exercise where you flew down the coast and back up again and maybe went up as high as Hanoi and, and – or more the, the seaport, that Haiphong <laughs> at the mouth of the river up there uh, and, and back and got aboard. I came up with big exercise. I remember looking out over northern part of South Vietnam and over into Laos and all that red. I thought, holy smoke, that's for real. It's only every one and every six, but you're not quite ready for that. And the first time you actually see it going by, uh, it makes you an older man immediately, I think.
0: Uh,
1: so... Um, I don't, I don't, where are we? So,
0: you're, but you're training to get ready to get over there. You're do, no are you dogfighting? Yeah. Are
1: you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, one on ones. That's what you did in your training. You left Miramar and went out over the water, and the standard deal was the your flight leader, you're the wingman, he kisses you off. You both turn 30 degrees away, and you proceed until one guy turns in. You can turn in immediately. you can wait if you're the younger guy you wait until the older guy finally turns in because he can't see you anymore you can Ah. barely see him and you know his eyeballs (laughs) (laughs) are not as good as yours but you turn in and make a head on and then you can see his wings flash and he sees your wings flash and you make a head-on pass but that's not the way it is in combat when you get into a combat situation. Well, statistically, it doesn't matter whether it's World War One, Korea, uh, or the Vietnam War, the guys who got shot down, the guys who didn't see it coming, it's like 99% of them. One guy got shot down, let's say. He said, yeah, he got it on me, and he pulled inside, and he unloaded, and he got me. But that's the exception, and moreover, 95% of the airplanes shot down. I popped a pee there in in Vietnam, uh, with AAA, not with Sam's. Everybody oh you know, Sam's this and Sam's that, but no. When you're vulnerable and relatively close to the ground, um, that's when they they got you. Especially when you could see it going by, you were in 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 the envelope, if you will. And that's just like a,
0: a matter of chance in a way.
1: That's right. Well, better tactics. There are better tactics and. Poor tactics. And I think I wrote in, is that my monograph there? A guy said to me way back, uh, in, you know, in Kingsville I teach you to let it roll off on a wing, let the nose fall, acquire the target, adjust a little bit, and now you're watching the altimeter and so forth. I said, this is baloney. I want to hit the target. I want to put them right in the hole there. So pull down. Up invert, pull down. Some ROs think you're crazy the first time they're in the back when you do this. Pull down. As steep as possible. Well, more than thirty degrees? You betcha. How about sixty or seventy degrees? The steeper you are, the safer you are, the faster you are, the better you are. And then I think I wrote in
0: here Is there any compromise when you go to when you go to come out of that dive and turn to Air, airplane back up towards Not the Not really,
1: because they've been through all that at Pax River. See, the, the, the flight test, in the book, the manual that you have, either the, 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 the NATOPS manual, it's, it's the flight manual for pilots, or the tactics manual, has all these tables in there, and you can say, if I get out and, let's, let's say, an 80 degrees angle of bank, a uh, dive, and I get out at six thousand feet. I'll still be well clear. I'll I have fifteen hundred feet of, of, to clear. If I pull six and a half G's to get out. If I pull seven, I'm I'm even better off. But you lose power when you do that. You I'm sorry. You lose airspeed when you do that. So you pull pull the G's. You you're safe. A and lot of guys this, would
0: not do that though. But you would. Well, did you train this way before going to Vietnam? Did you know that the high angle attack was better? No, or you figured out when you got there?
1: No, I figured it out in Arizona. Okay, going over there to those targets that they have. I guess in the East Coast they have them all over the place too, in rural places. It's a huge plowed area, and plowed in a in a circle. And you got they have two towers, wooden towers, on on twelve o'clock and nine o'clock, uh, three o'clock, and. Uh, they talk to each other, and they, they tell you where your hit was on the and a, and a white thing in the center. Um, and they tell you, you, you bomb. And, but a guy told me, if you want to be safe, be steeper, be faster. I said, that's for me. And then I saw this picture, sort of famous, and you've probably seen it, um, of an airplane diving on a Japanese aircraft carrier at Midway, and the guy is 89 degrees. That is for me. That's why I'm going to do it. So roll inverted, pull your nose down. Then you get your dive right there. Because your nose wants to come up the faster you go. In an airplane, whether it's a Piper Cub or an F-4 or f 18 your nose wants to rise as you build air uh, airspeed. It's just aerodynamics. <clears throat> so get the nose down there right now. And then you can do whatever you want. F-4... You could pull power to idle at 500, and it would hold 500. I don't know what they do in F-18s, but anyway, pull the power to idle at 500, almost no matter what your dive angle was. Or what does that
0: mean, pull power to idle at 500? What does that mean? Just
1: pull the throttles all the way back to idle, and it would hold 500 knots.
0: Got it. So you, Going would, down you would increase your speed to R- some. Right. I don't know why
1: it's just. They discovered it, no doubt, after they were actually flying the airplane. But if you go 550, it'll hold that. So a lot of guys would say, 500 is fast enough for me. I've got to pull out of this. I said, baloney, look on the charts. You can get out easy. They wouldn't do it. But I said, steeper is better. The guy in the back says, you know, we were 560 knots tonight. Yeah, fine. I like that. I, I, I never got any holes. I got scared a couple of times. Well, for, yeah got warned. I had a, a load go off right there that gave me. Sp- the, you have know, your picture taken with an uh, old style flash bulb and, yeah. and it gave me spots in front of my eyes. that was that close, but no holes. So I <laughs> never did. And there were guys that came back with a hole about as big as a forty-five uh, caliber bullet in the bottom of the airplane, but not me. We had l- leadership in the squadron I was in that I kept going back to reading your book about how this guy, oper- Rural Gardner, the way he operated. And he
0: was a former underwater demolition team guy. Right.
1: And, <laughs> and so how did he operate? <laughs> he was very laid back, very quiet. Uh, about everything, and uh, we we get after him about sharks, for instance, and he said, nah, he says, sharks don't bother you, but barracudas sometimes do. (laughs) They're curious, and they'll come right up to you and wonder what the heck you're doing and what you are. Uh, At any rate, that sort of thing. And he was the guy who would do the classic Navy routine, if you will. Tom, can you help me with this? as opposed to, Tom, get that done, rather, can you help me with this? It's funny, in leadership terms, if you say to a guy, can you help me with this, he may not really want to do it, but the way you phrase it makes you want to help him. If he says, do that or else, and you don't want to do it, it pisses you off. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's your style, but it's effective um, in leadership terms, very effective to, to, to use the, the old Navy way of doing things like that. I don't know how the Marine Corps operates, but uh, I had a pal who got killed in Vietnam uh, who was told me I will be a Marine general. He got killed um, being aggressive, I think, uh, based upon what I heard about. What, what happened with him, but at any rate, um, uh, you, I just wondered how the Marine Corps operates when the guy doesn't want to really do that, but he would if you had just asked him as opposed to saying, <laughs> do it or else.
0: <laughs> well, having worked with uh, all kinds of leaders in the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, uh, the good leaders in all those organizations are the type that say, "Hey, I need some help with this. Hey, what do you think? How, how do you think yeah. we should bet do this stuff?" And across the board, and then you take this into the civilian sector as well. The ones that bark orders and yell at people and say, "You need to do this right now because I'm ordering you to do it," they're 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 not ever ever considered to be good leaders. But that's by and large the Air Force style. I,
1: I, no exaggeration. I th- maybe uh, my experience in the Air Force wasn't broad enough. Mm-hmm. But by and large, that's what they do there. What, bark orders? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I think unfortunate. They, maybe the origin, having read his autobiography, he, you know, he didn't write it himself really, really. But Ferdinand Slomay talking about uh, the way he operated in England in World War II. Mm-hmm. Do it or
0: else. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, well, there's a whole there's a whole thing to talk about there. You know, there's yeah. this idea of the authoritarian people. Certain people have an authoritarian mindset. They're attracted to the authoritarian mindset, and the when they look at the military when they're ten years old or seventeen years old or twenty years old, they look at the military, and they're they're very excited about it because they think, oh, there's a place where if I have rank people have to respect me right. they have to listen to me right. and so the military actually attracts these type of people yeah. and most of the time they they, they kind of become not the best leaders and they usually don't make it very far because they piss people off and, and whatever right. occasionally you'll have someone that gets put in the right circumstances and despite the fact that they're a tyrannical leader they're still able to advance and you know you, Curtis LeMay is probably a good example of that you know here he was in charge of bombing Europe and he right. puts together a plan. It's like, hey, this is what we're doing. And it was an extreme situation and it ended up working. And then he gets, you know, his his They made him a hero. Yeah. But exactly it, in
1: his autobiography he says that I had no choice but to to begin to ascertain that we had to do it that way or else we yeah. wouldn't do it at all.
0: Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So so it can happen, but even, I mean, like I said, I've worked with Air Force, I've worked with Navy, I've worked with the Marine Corps, obviously I've worked with the Navy and the and the good leaders and all of them are not tyrannical at all. Now, are there situations that you can get into where it's like, hey, we got to, this is what we're doing. Occasionally that happens. Yeah, uh, but, but it doesn't really happen a lot. And yeah. Uh, now, I'm also thinking with your old job in the Air Force where you're, you know, you've got, there's no room for any because you're dealing with nuclear weapons that probably that probably emphasized that type of leadership more than because c- the other thing about authoritarian mindset is they don't do well in combat situations oftentimes mm. because they have a very structured mind. They have a very predetermined way of thinking. So they get th- they get thrown something that they didn't expect and they just fall apart. Yeah, you know the person that's great in garrison, that's great at keeping everyone, great at doing inspections, great at right. keeping everyone in the proper uniform. They get into combat where all of a sudden the enemy gets a vote, and there's things happen they didn't yeah. expect, and people are getting shot. And yeah. th- th- a lot of times, those people don't do well in combat scenarios. Well, there's something
1: about that. This occurs to me right now is that on consolation for that ten month, nine month cruise. I never heard of that happening, and you had two squadrons of A7s, two squadrons of F4s, one squadron of A6s, a detachment of RA5Cs, and combat helo squadron from Japan, uh, squadron whatever they were. Two, I think there were two two uh, armored heavy-duty helicopters and and the guys who who stood by the machine guns. I never heard of anything like that. Anything like anybody Anybody uh, screwing up or refusing or being unable to or anything like that. And they were using real bullets and and stuff there
0: every night. Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing, too, about the Navy in general is that the Navy in its nature – when you know f- from its from from the past, you know if you were my if you were a commander in my fleet, and I was going to send you and your ship somewhere, I wasn't going to be able to talk to you again. That's right. Back in yeah. the day. So except you, with flags, yeah, and only till you go over the horizon, right. And then it was like up to you, yeah. And so we had to we had to exercise a decentralized command more than anybody else, right. and that really when you when you really pull the thread on the SEAL teams that becomes very clear that that's one of the reasons why the SEAL teams has a reputation for being very adaptable and figuring things out, right. because we wouldn't get support all the time, and we had to, you know, it just being in the Navy, you, you, you had to figure things out. Yeah. The, other things, the other thing is, in the Navy, historically, if you're on a ship, you can't surrender. Yeah. You, you, you can't surrender, you, you have to just fight until your ship goes down, there's right. no quitting, right. because you'll die so you end up with that attitude embedded as well in the mindset um but but the and i think you know there's a lot of that with uh, with pilots as well is hey look i'm gonna do what makes sense for me in my aircraft to make sure that i stay alive and you have to make those decisions for yourself and so it's on you well when i was in thailand um
1: to my shock uh, flying with facts, Air Force facts. I never told them I was a uh, previous Air Force. I I thought that's too uh, controversial. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> I just let it go. And, and uh, uh, they see these guys, Air Force guys, doing 30-degree dives. And I thought, that's crazy. You it has to be at least 45, at least 60. And, of course, what I did was as steep as you could get. The uh, hell with it. I'm not going to get <laughs> shot down here and, and so forth. But 30-degree dives, and I think they all did that. And they had the same charts that Navy had. Um, so, and the Air Force was known for charts. But maybe theirs were even better than, or more complete or larger than what we had. But you couldn't hit the ground. Uh, A yeah, 60-degree dive, dive in the middle of the night, are you nuts? You can't hit the ground. What happens if they've got a tower up there? Well, you're still going to be 1,000 feet clear of that. So if you use a 6,000-foot release and a 550-degree dive, uh, a 550-knot dive and 550-knot release and 60- or 80-degree dive, you're not going to hit the ground. Don't worry about it. You won't do it. It can't. You won't.
0: So. And what are you pulling? Seven Gs at the bottom of that? Six and a down, half is
1: what we usually did. I think. Uh, if you look down while you're doing it, the needle's just doing that, just above six. So, you you could you would look down from time to time at that. If you're pulling out, you've got not nothing else to look at anyway.
3: Yeah, I think that's a number you're saying. As I as I listen to you talk about it, it is a little surprising that you wouldn't do a steeper dive, especially in that in that airplane, because you're also more accurate, you know where right. that bomb's gonna go. Yeah. And to be quite honest, like six and a half G's is not that hard if you get used to it and if right. it keeps you right. from, from, from- It becomes from, ordinary. Yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Any pilot could get used to that. I think the biggest problem is people don't like doing that stuff at night. Yeah. And yeah. that to me is, it's, it's interesting that more people didn't have the same logic that you had, which is steeper is better and I just do the math. I got a minute altitude to recover from, and if I pull back on the stick, I can survive six and FGS no factor, and right. I'll pull out. And I'll be fine.
2: Yeah,
1: because um, the engineering knowledge
3: is right there yeah. on the
1: paper, and you could see it. But um, a thirty
3: degree did, dive seems—I I, I didn't even know that was even something that you were doing. <laughs> That's a shallow. It's just a, It's especially in a place like that where ground fire not not, not the trip, not the Sam's. Although I know Sam's are always considered, but but triple like a thirty degree airplane is a big giant airplane there's just a lot of airplane to see at 30 degrees where at 60 degrees or 70 degrees there's a very little amount of airplane to see and I would think that's the math game you would be playing is a smaller platform the better.
1: I got one better than that. I was with this OV-10 guy riding in the back with the binoculars and these two F-4s showed up and they made about three runs from the same direction, 30 degree dives, one after the other. That's crazy. Are you nuts? You always come in from over there. And one then that you made one dive from over there, you over here for your second, we used to drop pairs, and we have six 500-pound bombs and make three runs with pairs. But never the, from the same direction, never. And when the lead goes in over here, turn a around the circle and come in from the other side because that means he's got to turn the gun all the way around over there because he was shooting at him. <laughs> the thing is, that's another thing about the first guy in, in the movies, John Wayne is the first guy in. It's not a big deal. They're still getting the gun turned around, and he's off the target by then. It's the it's second dash guy. Four, yeah, that's the last
0: guy <laughs> dash two, dash three, dash four are the ones that take it, huh? That's right. <laughs> so so you feel like you were pretty good prepared for that deployment. You were out bombing. You were doing these steep things, getting ready to deploy.
1: Yeah, I was getting better at that, uh, and I didn't get good at it until we were over there. And... and uh, and and uh, you know they they don't emphasize they don't talk about the fact that there's a lot of flack and you will see it going by they don't tell you that I, <laughs> because maybe they're afraid of somebody saying not not for me I got a bad cold and I think I got a permanent cold and maybe I do a lot better ah oh, in Iceland and than uh, doing this so I don't I don't know but. Uh, uh, the other thing about uh, that being prepared was the the advent. I said to to David the the only my real claim to fame here, because I'm pretty ordinary actually, was the fact that I was there when Sam Leeds walked around VF-121 and said, "We're going to start this thing, and maybe you might want to be part of it because we don't want to have any more." F-4 shot down by MiG-17s. Not so much 21s, but MiG-17s.
3: What did they call it? Was it called the Advanced Gunnery School? Do you remember what it was called? No, they called called
1: it Navy Advanced Fighter Weapons School. Okay. Uh, Or it could, I think initially they said it might be called something like that. It was all very loose. And I think they had okay for somebody on the Admiral's staff in in North Island, but it was uh, very uh, loose. And they said... uh, if you volunteer, um, you'll fly extra time, and maybe you don't want to do it because it's going to be at six o'clock in the morning. And if you don't fly, you have to be here at six o- at four four thirty in the morning to man up and run the airplanes out, and make sure everything on the airplane systems, engines, and whatnot work, and the radar works because you're going to have a, a experienced good guy in your back seat just for this morning exercise so that when we put two, four airplanes out on the parking ramp, they all work and all the radars work. So uh, be ready for that. You will be here at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, and you won't fly. Ooh, a lot of guys say, forget that.
0: (laughs) So did you do it?
1: I did it, yeah. And... uh, it was, it was, and you, you will fly ACM, Air Combat Maneuvering, uh, with our instructors and so forth. One of my claims to fame is Sam, flying with Sam Leeds in, a, in an A-4. They had, at that point, they had several generations of A-4s, and they had two-seat A-4s and I think a couple of single seats. They had a much bigger engine in them. And they had, for the uh, instrument rag... At Miramar, they had a couple with the big engines in them, and that 's when they flew at imitating the mig seventeen don 't get close to this guy he 'll eat you alive, which is true and that 's uh, Duke Cunningham should have been shot down he should have been shot down a couple of times he 's very lucky, just lucky, but at any rate, doing the wrong thing with sam leeds isn 't my bragging point um, one of the few ones. I, I, he came in on me trying to suck me into a what's called a scissors. It's two airplanes who do this, one trying to be slower than the other guy. And I rolled over the top on him and went to burner. And I was standing there upside down above him in burner. And he said, to me, "I can still in my mind's eye see him looking up at me." And say, he said to me, "I can't believe you're doing this," <laughs> which was the wrong thing to do. That would be a last, last resort with a Mig 17 because if you screw it up, he's going he's to kill you. <laughs> and you were, you were in a
3: Phantom, and he was in an A4. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but I was standing upside down on my tail on, in Max Burner uh, to do that, and. Uh, and uh, Sam Leeds is a maximum nice guy. Dan Peterson is a little bit removed, a little bit standoffish, sort of guy. Not a bad guy or anything like that, but a little bit standoff. But Sam Leeds is how the hell are you sort of guy. Uh, at any rate, he said to me, I can't believe you're doing that. <laughs> <So,
0: anyway.
1: laughs> Aviation and the and, uh, stick and rudder stuff. <laughs>
0: Okay, so now you're deploying to Vietnam. Do you just load on the aircraft carrier? You're on the USS Constellation. You just no, load? you
1: go on a mini cruise um, for uh, Monday through Friday. What's supposed to be or was um, for a month for four weeks and. Uh, uh, Yeah, well, before you they let you near the ship, you have to
2: mm,
1: pure carequal. That's all you do. And we went to uh, the East Coast to do that. The bunch I was with, and uh, uh, it was wintertime. Poopy suits back in those days. Rubber immersion suits. Did you ever wear one?
3: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, Good times. (laughs) What is this? In case you're ejected into the water. the waters
3: below a certain temperature, you die. Super fast, so you got to wear those emergency suit in case you eject into the ocean. So it's just a big rubber suit that sucks. I'm not going to complain about it in front of a seal, but it's not cool.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's the water and and air temperature less yeah. than a certain number, right. and uh, you know, they're not supposed to leak. But everybody that you, you know, parachute riggers and people like that, and say, don't worry, they all leak. <laughs> and the other thing is getting into this thing. The the zipper goes from here. To down here somewhere, so how do you get your head through there? Basically, shoulders up, get somebody to help you and pull it up over your head, and then he lets go and it takes your ears off, so to speak. And pulling down because it makes a tight seal around your neck, and
2: uh,
1: above your neck, I guess you have no uh, protection from the seawater either. But I don't know. And then it, around the wrists, so your hands are going to get ice cold. The, the problem is you, in that, maybe you know this, uh, the, in cold water like that, North Atlantic and whatnot, you stop breathing. You can't breathe. You're fully conscious, but your whole diaphragm cools down and it won't work for you. So you're going to drown because now your swimming ability is falling mm-hmm. and the um, your diaphragm just will not make... Get oxygen for you, uh, so you you're done. But at any rate, my first my first traps in the F4 were in a poopy suit <laughs> off Norfolk in March or February. I can't remember. Not that it matters.
0: <laughs> and then, uh, and then you then you board the carrier, and you guys once sail you, over yeah, on the carrier.
1: Once you, yeah. Once you get, they give you. Well, they did. I don't know how they do it now, but uh, in the F4, they gave you about four day traps. One, your initial – in my case, I flew aboard. If you fly aboard, you walk off. But uh, uh, your initial day trap, and then next day, uh, maybe two, maybe one, and so forth, getting you used to the whole idea. And after you have about four, or five, or six – I can't remember what it was – then you get your first night, which is thrilling and uh, – <laughs> Nick Farr? Nick so
0: uh, What's well, Nick Farr? Uh, German. Uh, <laughs> what does it mean? Not so. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was <laughs> just being facetious.
1: He's a just a German, isn't, it's isn't he? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Burke Ber- Burke. Anyway, um I I got my first night I, I, they shot me off the bow of America C V. A-66, and I thought, holy smoke, it's being shot into a cave, and I can't fly this crazy thing. Calm down, Tom. So, all right, you go up and around and get on the downwind. And don't look at the ship, they told you. Do not look over at the ship. It will give you a case of vertigo or spatial disorientation. Do not look at the ship. I what, see. just look at your instruments? Yeah. And it was an overcast night and whatnot, so high overcast. I could see the ship in the corner of my eye over here, driving on down the downwind, and driving on the downwind. I see it over there. I took a look. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they told you. Don't look at the ship. <laughs> don't look at the ship. I did. I can tell you. Well,
3: I don't understand why. Why does it freak I, you out? I to look have at the ship?
1: no idea. Is that yeah,
3: the but same it thing they told you, Dave? Yeah. That when, like so, it, it's just a spatial thing. You look out. There's no like what he's talking about. There's no horizon. You have no sense of where flat or level or the sky and the right. water meet. And so if you look over which we all do because yep. you'll find the down one if you look to your left the ship is there you cannot not look no, I mean, and yeah. um <laughs> and the then lights give, disorient you as to when you see lights lights should either be up, up or down so it creates disorientation which you can recover from by looking to instruments but the don't look at the ship everybody's told the same thing <laughs> there's
1: no anything. line between the blackness right. that is no. the water the blackness that is behind the ship and the blackness that is over the ship. The ship is just sort of floating, it's like it's floating in, in black yeah. space, somewhere, somehow or other. I'm getting dizzy just thinking about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you ever get used to landing on the
1: carrier? Well, that's part. Of this second part of this. So I, I got aboard and went below. And there's a lieutenant commander, a nice guy from Miramar, who was there, getting re-upped to go to sea. And he's and I. I went to the wardroom on Constellation, the main wardroom was the second deck. So I went down there and I got my coffee and I got my donut or whatever it was and he said, pretty dark out there. And I said, phew, I had no idea, (laughs) I thought I would know, but uh, he said, well, you'll get used to it in the daytime, it gets to be fun in the daytime, which is true. But nobody ever likes it at night. <laughs> Which is true. That's <laughs> Dave confirmed?
0: 100%. <laughs> Daytime can be fun, nighttime, not so much. That's right. It's 100% true. Full then, moon is pretty easy?
1: No, it's no? worse because you got shadows and you'd make a turn and the moon is there and it puts a light across your cockpit and it, 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 it travels across and it gives you. A mild case of spatial disorientation, you don't want that. Black is better. And then you're just on the gauges, and that's an end of it until the guy says, three-quarters of a mile, call the ball. And, uh, and assuming you're on center line on slope <laughs> on at that point, it's uh, basically you just got to wait it out. Mm-hmm. But that's how I got in trouble, So, which is... In those notes. Are you looking at my
3: notes? Different, different notes, but ah. it comes from the same thing. Yeah. What got you in trouble? I'm, I'm interested. Just
1: Lower your nose in close. Come down Not one good, wire. Yeah. <laughs> Not good. Well, what's, what happened? Well, uh, you bolter. And you What's say, that mean? I'm sorry. No wire. You don't get a wire and, and the lights come on and shoop, you're off the angle. Oh, okay. you're, so so you're too, too high coming to land. Stay
3: too high. You, you, you miss. It
1: can happen. You can be innocent and the wires are the wire's staggered. Not there They're not the same space so that if you have a hook skip, mm-hmm. you can even hook skip two wires. It has happened. And off the angle you go and uh, rats.
0: What'd you call it? What's the verb for it? Bolter. Bolter?
1: B-O-L-T-E-R. That means that you miss the wire. Yeah. And the LSO, he's very helpful. You know what he says?
0: <laughs> Bolter, 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 Bolter.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. I <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and so as soon as, you, as soon as you miss, you have to floor, you have to, you well, have to you, full yeah, power? when
1: you touch down, you, you go to full power. Oh, anyway. that's regardless. Okay. Yeah, basic engine. Uh, and from time to time, on the F-4 anyway, the engines would be slightly misrigged, and one of them would go to min burner. And the ship would go apeshit and tell you, oh, no, you've got to do yelling at you, come out of burner and things like that. It didn't mean anything.
0: So you have the bolter-bolter, then what happens?
1: Um uh, said it got you into trouble. Yeah. The, well, I guess the ship is on the same their, – their radar facility, the CCI, is on the same frequency. And they hear the LSO say, bolter-bolter, and they'll say, uh, uh, 212, uh, continue straight ahead to 500 feet, turn left heading west and so, which would be a crosswind, mm-hmm. and then you do that and climb and maintain 1,200 feet or 1,000 feet or whatever it is and, and turn left to us and so, and then you're on the downwind. And then they will, you have more planes coming in, coming down from the holding chute, if you will, and they'll, they'll squeeze you in in the middle there. Um, so, or they take you way down till one guy is early and one guy is a little, you push over from those altitude at an exact, you're supposed to, to the second timing from the, uh, from the stack. And some guys are a little bit early, mm-hmm. some guys are a little bit late. And so they can squeeze you in. And they squeeze you in, uh, uh, in there and, uh, and then you get aboard the second time, we, <clears throat> we hope. But at any rate, uh, what, how do you bolter uh, if you hook, skip, or you're high and lay long? So I got in trouble because I boltered, and uh, not, I'm not going to do this two nights in a row. And it's almost unconscious, lower nose in close.
0: <laughs> what? That's a move that you make to try and make and sure you And airplane you're not high. comes
1: down like a safe. <laughs> <laughs> and they also call it taxi one wire. <laughs> in that you land before, or your hook does uh, well before the one wire, and you taxi into the one wire. <laughs> so, and uh, thank heavens we're aboard. And that's enough for this for tonight, and so forth. So, out of the next say ten nights, I got well at the end. Let's say I got six come down in close. So, Rule Gardner came to me and he said, uh, Tom, in the passageway, too, that's another thing, laid back, in the passageway, Tom, I don't want you to fly tomorrow, and uh, you're not on the schedule, because I don't like this, um, and I don't want to make Pamela a widow. Oh, we had been married about 14 months at that point, so... uh, He said, I want you to think about it. This is not a punishment, but I want you to think about lower nose and close. And So if I fly that meatball to touchdown, that was the end of it. But that's the way he was. Leadership again, very laid back. I don't want you to fly. Mm -hmm. Rather than almost indicating if you wanted to fly badly enough, Mm -hmm. go to the schedules office and tell them to put yourself back on the schedule. But uh, no, you didn't do any of that. Just...
0: So you bolter bolter one
1: time? No, it, like four out of six the uh, week before, oh. and that's why he did that. God, c- come so down! So once it got
0: in your head, right, right,
1: and it's almost unconscious. Mm-hmm. I think Dave can, can vouch to that. You do it without really thinking about it. Yeah, you don't say I'm going to. As soon as I get past the ramp, I'm going to lower the nose. It's. A bad habit mm-hmm. that you don't know why you do it, and and you do. So after you sit down for twenty four hours and think that is dangerous, that is stupid, and you've seen f- pictures, flight deck pictures of lower nose. Like, I'm not gonna do that anymore.
0: Is it a case of overcompensation, Dave? Like subconscious overcompensation that you put, you get over the ramp and you
3: crank it down a little
0: bit because you want to be early because you don't want to yeah. be long
3: i think that feeling the the first time you bolter at night is a really awful feeling because all you want to do is land like you just you would trade anything you have just to be on that flight deck and so you do all this work thomas talking about the timing down to the second there's a lot of work to get you to three quarters of a mile it's a lot of work from the stack down to the end of the runway or end of the ship and typically when you bolter it's because in the last probably three seconds of a, however long or this or evolution less than is, that. Yeah, or two seconds, you make one little error in the last two seconds and it pushes you past the wires by five feet. Yep. And then you're back in the air again and you, you don't wanna be there. And so when I think in your mind you say, when I get in close, and the term is called in close to at the ramp, it's the last three or four seconds of flying, I am not gonna add power. He mentioned something earlier about something called the burble, which is a real thing. And the wind that goes over the flight deck, especially in a conventional carrier that has to make its own wind, meaning it has to run the engines to get speed. You have to have 30 knots of wind over the flight deck. That burble, the way the wind goes over the flight deck and right at the end of the runway, it curves down towards the water, will literally pull your airplane down just a couple of feet. But if you add the burble for three or four feet, it's going to pull you down. And, and that
1: destroys part of your lift as well.
3: Absolutely. And then that that psychological piece of I am not gonna go high, yep. that six or seven foot difference will put your plane in the back of the ship and, and literally blow it up. That's the videos he's talking about. And I think the combination of those two creates a really, really dangerous combination of the psychology you talked about and the actual aerodynamics of it. And I would say, just a high majority, if not almost all of the mishaps around the ship, aren't really because of mechanical or engine problems. It's because of that scenario. And yeah. the LSOs probably went to the CO and said, "Hey, you got to talk to this that's guy because right. he's gonna he's gonna kill himself." And that's when the skipper, you know, and and I'm obviously putting words in his mouth based on common experience. I didn't talk about it specifically, right. but it sounds right. like I'm hitting close to the mark. Yes, of that you feeling,
1: are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what happens. It's all very laid back, too. As a matter of fact, the LSOs, he earlier that night said to you, Tom, this is a, your third uh, bolt of the lower nose in close in a row. This is not good. You've got to work on this. And then four hours later, he came to me in the passageway and said, we're not going to do this. we have going
0: to change. Dave, how, yeah. off, how many times did you bolter, bolter? <clears throat>
3: I, I probably so on my first cruise I had no bolters on my second cruise I had one bolter. Oh boy. <laughs> In training um when you're talking about CQ uh night CQ I, I I bet I had at least one if not two bolters at night.
0: What's night CQ?
3: No, I'm sorry, night carrier qualifications. Got it. The night
0: c- Before you deploy. Before you
3: deploy. So the night CQ I've, I I I had probably a, a, a relatively small handful. Once you're on, you know, like on cruise and underway, it's not. It doesn't happen all that often. But um, the thing that's crazy is probably some of the worst flying you'll ever do is off the coast of California because it's overcast at 800 feet all the time, even though it's beautiful Southern California weather. So it's pitch black underneath that overcast, even if there is a full moon, because there's a big cloud layer there, and uh, the, the the Pacific Ocean likes to move around. The, the ship moves around, and it sucks. It's awful. Um, so, <laughs> so he flew a much harder plane yeah. to get aboard the ship than I ever did. So well, what he did was too. harder. Like
0: you're talking about you might have had four of these in your career, and you had four of them in six nights Five nights. Yeah. <laughs> That's enough to freak someone out for yeah. sure. Yeah.
1: I don't know. Yeah, The F-4 was an ancient airplane, in a manner of speaking, and the F 18 is a different breed of cat completely. Yeah. And I was told the F 18 is actually a fun airplane, easy airplane to fly, and then you, the ha- I- then you have to work to get really good at it, but that's something else. And the F-4, first time I flew the F-4 with my instructor in the back cockpit, we went back, you take off and go out over the Pacific, off Miramar. And... Headed north, and he said, You can level off here at 15,000, or more or less, it didn't matter. And I tried to level off, and I thought, I can't even fly this thing (laughs) straight and (laughs) level. But the F 4 was designed to be an unstable platform, and then they put three axial axis stabilizing devices in there and the early models had a single switch and then they put three separate switches for pitch roll, and yaw and a lot of guys I at the end I would I'd turn the roll off most most guys did total roll but at any rate it was an unstable airplane so if you touch the stick a little bit it'll do that you touch the stick, it, it turns off the stabilizing system when you touch the stick there are micro switches in the base of the physical hand grip. And as soon as you touch it a little bit, it turns off the roll stab. You pull back just a little bit, turns off the, just a little bit. So actually before you fly the airplane, they want you to get familiar with the cockpit and so forth. They say to you, realize that this system is there. And if it's quiet, you can hear the micro switches click and you can, Mm -hmm. but you just gotta touch them. Click, it, click, very faint, but they're in there, and it turns off the roll stab. So here you are your first time out with this thing, and you touch it a little bit, and it turns off the micro stab, the, the, the stabilization in pitch, and it does one of these, because you go the other way, and it keeps it off, and so forth, and then you push it a little bit this way, and it turns that off, too, and then you go back, and so forth. And there, it only turns it off for... Half a second or something like that. But if you hit it again, yeah, it if you over-crack over the other side. All right, it's just and off. so forth and so They're forth unstable. and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So, but the the F A eighteen is a modern airplane. The F four was just an airplane that they, Mister McDonald said, I want a monster, and uh, I wanted to do this, that, and the other thing. And and if you have a problem with it, won't do that. Add a system to do that. And they did, and they kept on doing that, and uh, that's what you got. You got a hell of an airplane. But my favorite quote about the F four was a Marine in one of the one of the books. I, as you might suspect, I have airplane books and whatnot. And uh, he said, "I flew the F four for three years, and it never killed me." <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you're. Uh... <clears throat> So now you get to Vietnam. What's your mission? What are you guys doing? What's Ho Chi Minh
1: Trail, Ho Chi Minh Trail, Ho Chi Minh Trail. That and BARCAP. Um, it was a bombing pause in the north, and uh, the only things were going up there were RA-5Cs to look at whatever changes they made, probably in the, mostly in the airfields and also looking for SAM sites. Uh, so you, you, being a first cruise guy, you were not going to fly that escort until you did it. (laughs) I think that's a Navy tradition. You can't do it until you do it. So uh, for the first three or four months of that cruise, I didn't fly any uh, recce fighter escort uh, up there. And then uh, basically what happens is, and everybody I think is familiar with this, uh, f- Fred's sick Tom can you do this <laughs> yeah I can do that so then you're the escort for the fighter uh, for the RA5c and then you're on the regular uh, schedule for that after that uh,
0: but that was the best flying I ever did in my life at uh, keeping with him so what was that? what would one of those mission profiles look like
1: well um, launch and point towards North Vietnam the coast, and uh, they, they were always looking around, so half the time they would see you on radar, and you, you have receivers, and yeah, playing, the F-18 probably has better ones, far better ones than we had. And you see them looking at you as, they, as the sweep goes by, and uh, depressurize the cockpit, and, uh, and give yourself a little spacing on the RA-5C, and... Uh, he has promised that he will not go closer than 1,000 feet to the undercast. He will be above 4,000 feet of the, I'm sorry, the overcast. Mm-hmm. He won't be he won't get that close to the undercast. He will be four or 5,000 feet above the undercast. He won't go faster. He won't use burner and about four other things. And then when you get into it. He does everything that he says he wouldn't do because he's shitting in his pants too. Because <laughs> they're looking at you. Once you're in there they're looking at you with about three different, you can hear the different so, tones, wh- different kinds of radars. So what are they doing? What's the RA-5C doing? Taking pictures. He's a, And you're just
0: protecting uh, it.
1: Right. Because the MiG-21s shot down a lot of RA-5Cs. And what they would do is they figured maybe they're going to do it today. And they put um, one or two MiG-21s at very high altitude, let's above 35,000 because they get more speed out of it. it so the MiG-21 would go 1.8 downhill easy. So they would wait until the, the RA-5C turned away from where their loiter is up here. And he's down at 2,000 feet taking pictures and then come downhill behind him. So your job was to stay away from him and always be looking back there, this side too, because you never know. But always back here, and so with stay away from him. What people in the in the YouTubes and things like that call thatch weave, Mister. Uh, Commander Thatch invented that in 1944 or something like that, and it's, it's absolutely. Air Force, they always write with each other, and it's just useless and a waste of uh, fuel. We always stay one mile minimum. Mile and a quarter is a little better, so you can come back and so forth. So. Uh, watch out for uh, MiG 21. I wanted to be head on with MiG 21 because with the F 4 system. Well, before that, off the coast of California, nobody ever told me you could do this, but I wondered against F 8s. I put the Pipper, 35 mil pepper down the intake of an F 8, an and guess what happened? Rawr! The, the uh, Sidewinder growl, which means it sees heat. Look, just looking down the, the, in, the intake, so I, I wanted to do that with a MIG-21. <laughs> but I never got the chance. And I said to Jimmy, I said, when, my best friend, um, I said, so that you can claim we got him with a, with a Sparrow. We won't know which, because as soon as that sidewinder leaves, I'm going to flip to, because you've got the pepper on it, I'm going to flip to radar and pull the trigger a second time. So... And I said, when that big guy sees, maybe the sidewinder won't guide, maybe it'll miss him by 30 feet and the kill radius is only 25 and stuff like that. But when he sees that sparrow coming at him, that monster (laughs) sparrow, he's going to shit in his pants. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. how to get into this? Well, I was just you know,
0: asking what that mission profile was Yeah, like. so
1: at any rate, you'd you, you follow him around, basically, at uh, high speed. And he always said he wasn't going to use burner. And he had the same engines that you have. And the J79 would put out, ordinarily, put out a smoke trail. We got a mod in the F4 late in the cruise that would stop that in and, and a fuel additive. But uh, And they had to put piping in to, to do that. But at any rate... You look over at him, and he's not smoking. That means he's in min burner to get rid of the smoke. As soon as you did that, the smoke went away. So, and you look down, and the max low altitude speed on the F four indicated airspeed was I think like seven hundred and forty, and you you look at the indicated airspeed, and he's not in burner. We're we're doing seven hundred and ninety <laughs> indicated relatively close to the ground. <laughs> We're smoking along here. And then you come back and they know what you've been doing, although it's a combat situation, you're not gonna nobody ever complains. But I have a picture of an F four coming aboard with and it's big dents in all three tanks, because you've been up there. Uh up if not at the mock really close to it. And it the, the dynamic pressure dents the fronts Of the tanks, and maybe they don't do that anymore. Maybe put some sort of a reinforcement on the front end of the tanks, but those tanks were not reinforced in the noses, and they were all dented from stuff doing stuff like that. From
3: Uh, this story is so cool for me because that's that's like just classic naval aviation. What I always loved about flying with the Navy and the Marine Corps was he's talking about that forward, that missile he was talking about in training. Like The book says you can only shoot the missile from the back of an airplane. That's the rule, and that's how it works, and they tell you. And the coolest thing about flying with the guys in the Navy, they're like, I don't care what the book says. I'm gonna go try this, and that's see if right. it works. And that's right. this missile, which is on paper and designed to only shoot the back of a jet, because the engine's in the back, that's where all the heat is. These guys figured out, I could shoot this thing, we call it forward quarter, in the nose. And the best part about that is if you launch this at a MIG, I guarantee you, he would do exactly what described, because nobody else would do that, yeah. because the book says you can't do it. So I just like I like listening to your stories of, I don't care what the book says, I'm going to try this and see if it works, and yeah. that F-8, that big giant intake probably replicated a MiG-21's big nose with that big giant engine right in the front of the airplane. That's right. pretty cool thinking. I like that.
1: And, and he had a 37-millimeter gun, too, in both those airplanes. and. You better not shake your gun, pants yeah. too soon because he's going to be firing that thing on a head-on, no matter which one it is, at you. Now, you've got a piece of bulletproof glass in the front of you, in, in the older airplanes, the F-4 you did. Uh, so it shouldn't hit you in the face, I guess, but he's liable to ruin your radar, which could be a problem. If he if he gets close to you with that head on, but as soon as you pull that trigger, he's gonna he never saw anything like that in his life, (laughs) and he's been told that the F four has to get behind you, so don't worry about it. And that's what I always and I said, Jimmy, you're gonna be able to. We get that Mig with a with a Sparrow, (laughs) because that's the uh, the the uh, radar
0: operator's missile. Mm. It is a Sparrow. And so what, what was it that made those recon missions so fun for you, just that you're up there hauling ass around? Um, well, this goes back to something I put in that deal. I heard
1: Chappie James say it the first time, and I think it's common, but don't uh, get in the airplane, strap it on to you. Uh, Chappy James was quite a guy, and uh, I talked to him once, once. But... And you know who he was? No. No. He was a black Chabu guy James. who was number two to Robin Owls in Thailand. And Robin Owls got all the publicity and all this. And Chabby James was the quiet guy who kept his place and so forth. And, but they made him a four-star general. Uh, he was – the night I talked to him, he was a speaker at a dinner. And he had the place in the palm of his hand. And, and, and then it, you figure he's probably winding up about now. And he said, you've been such a great audience. I'm going to sing a song for you. And I thought, oh, the poor man. He's going to ruin everything. He had it made here. And now he's going to make a fool of himself. He sang Old Man River like a metropolitan opera. He <laughs> was really, really something. So and then he talked with, with the troops after... Everything was done, mm-hmm. you know. he, he was he strap it on, don't. So that, that was the first time I, I felt that way, truly felt that way, fly like the airplane is attached to you and me the, the other way around. Because when he you, you want to stay a mile or a mile and a quarter of a beam, what happens if he turns into you? Well, you go high and you come up here this way and watch him going around the bend. And then you can go to the because you, you're coming downhill. You're going to gain energy, so you can go to the outside. If you figure his next turn will be into you again, well, then you can go up without adding power, because as uh, you go. No, that, that's wrong. But if he turns into you, you can go high. Would you fly
0: with the same guy all the time? In the back seat? No, yeah. the, the 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 plane that you were covering for.
1: No, you didn't even know his name. No kidding. Yeah. And they were all because they are they lost a lot of young guys flying the RA5C early in its career. They switched to mostly uh, senior guys with a lot of hours and a lot of traps. Mm-hmm. They they would lose them at at the ramp. Um, so they those guys were maybe they were all commanders, uh, which is too old to be just an airplane driver on a on a carrier, but. Uh, because of the difficulty of getting the, the monster, that monster, aboard, it heavy, their, their launch weight was a little over 80,000 on, on that thing. And the standard launch weight that has come to pass more or less is around 60,000. Yeah. So 20,000 pounds heavier off the off – the, or getting aboard. The so um, they had senior guys uh, doing that. I think there was one guy who was a lieutenant commander, but uh, anyway, flying with him, uh, flying, I discovered I could fly like a bird because um, at that point in your training or in your experience level, you get you start to get that good at it, and I thought, holy smoke, I'm doing this this way, even though at that point I had thousand hours of told flying, maybe more than that, flying experience, but uh, it was something of a revelation to be able to fly where you wanted to go and not be limited by what the machine would do. You know. and especially with the F-4 when you had all that power and especially when you're about halfway through your fuel load, you have a lot more power because you, your weight is, is gone.
0: How long did the fuel last? How long did
1: you have? Well, the cycle on Constellation in Combat Zone was uh, uh, two uh, two, two and a half. They called it a two-hour cycle, but you wound up flying two and a half hours because they would launch everybody and then they would recover you. So I think they launched every two hours. I think that's how it worked. You know, I, I never thought of it quite this way. But at any rate, my traps on Combat Zone were always about... Mm 2.6 mm-hmm did you guys get gas only from time to time
3: that's a long time
1: yeah and uh, the f4 fuel gobbler and uh, you were always always slow sweating fuel always sweating fuel
3: the cycle time they measure the cycle time when he's talking about on an aircraft carrier in the cycle time is launch to launch so if it's two hours that means a launch happens and two hours later the launch happens what's bad about that is if you're on a two-hour cycle, when you launch, you'll be the first one to go in your Phantom. And then two hours later, the next launch goes, you have to wait for all those airplanes to get launched before you recover. So that two hours is two hours from takeoff to takeoff. You have to wait for everybody else on the next launch to take off before you can land. So that two becomes two and a half. Got and it. 30 minutes, an extra 30 minutes is a lot of time to yep. manage your gas. That's, you that's, burn 100
1: pounds a minute.
3: Yeah, that's a lot. 100 pounds a minute?
1: Yeah. That's 6,000 pounds 6, an hour. 6,000
3: pounds an hour, yeah. <sighs>
0: um, how about hitting the Ho Chi Minh Trail, doing those bombing runs?
1: Well, you, you always had a uh, – well, what you do is – no, I had your flight leader. I was always doing one. Uh, your flight leader would uh, call – I think it was a piston engine Lockheed Constellation that was out over the water mm-hmm. south – and he would ask you what you were and what your ordinance was, and uh, he'd come back and say, your FAC is going to be uh, uh, camera tutu and he is currently at the and so of the less-and-so tac and he will meet you at the less-and-so and less-and-so of that tac and which would be somewhere in northern Laos. Uh, and uh, he, he'll be there in 12 minutes. He's on route right now. So you would go there and, uh, excuse me, and you'd go there and uh, we'll wait a couple of minutes because if you called him up early, he'd say, I'm (laughs) I'm going as fast as I can, (laughs) and and so forth. So anyway, then he'd call you up and say, I'm in your area now. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. And he had uh, what they, they called logs. They were pieces of wood that were... Uh, four inches square and about two feet long. It had holes drilled longitudinally in there, and they had uh, Willie Pete uh, inside. And he had a way, and maybe they had a fuse or something. I don't remember that light. That and he would fly over the spot where, more or less, where he wanted you to go, and he would drop it out a trap door that he had in the bottom of the airplane. Is this true?
2: Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and
1: and and then he would go drop a second one. And he said, "Do you have my?" my two markers, and you'd say, yeah, okay. he said, now, they are northeast and southwest. So um, remember, they're northeast. They're not north and south. They're northeast and southwest. And what you want is on a triangle <laughs> pointed to the north, um, but to the northeast, and, and sort of, and there's a crossroads there. Can you see the crossroads? And sometimes you could on a moonlit night. He said, okay, now not the crosswalk, <laughs> but
2: <laughs>
1: this, is all, I, this is really That's what, they what would, you're doing. Yeah. And, and he'd say, I'd drop another one, but we don't want to alert them because the trucks are all parked right now. But there's a grove of heavy trees. Can you see those? No, you can't. I would always turn my lights out after get off the ship and, and get, how would you put it comfortable for a couple of minutes? I'd turn everything off because I had a good, best RO in the back. And uh, and of course you can hear something's amiss in the airplane. What's that ticking? What's that thumping? Whatever, the engines don't sound right. You can hear all that even with your helmet on. So I figured, and warning light panels for galore. So I figured, turn it out. The human eye takes—you probably know this—it yeah, takes worry, about thirty minutes, yeah, half an hour. Yeah. The same length of time it takes the sun to set. So uh, after half an hour, you can see everything on the ground, and the facts talking about that grove of trees. Yeah, I can see what you're talking about. I can see where that those roads are. I only started doing that after about two or three months, because initially you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> turn the turn the lights out, and and turn the panel lights all the way down. The warning panels, they they any warning lights, low fuel or anything like that. They, that doesn't turn down, as you might figure. Mm-hmm. So I figured, and with a good guy in the back, um, he'll let me know. So at any rate, uh, and then you're almost like almost daylight when you you eyes get truly acclimated. And you see everything on the ground, even if there's just the least little no moon, but just stars. You can see stuff on the ground. So at any rate, that's
0: were what you I always mean, running day uh, nighttime missions.
1: 99 95 99%. What would of, what would
0: cause a daytime
1: mission? A uh, new on Yankee Station. The first day, maybe day 2 days, day, days, but then after that all nights. And you would be on Yankee Station for 31 32 days. Well, what's the Yankee Station? What is it? It's the Northern Gulf of Tonkin. Northern Gulf, and initially they had a, a second carrier they called Dixie Station off of South Vietnam, but Got then they it. stopped that, and they would have two carriers in uh, up north on, <clears throat> excuse me on Yankee, Yankee station but anyway, you uh, turn the lights out and you could see everything at night, and the guy says, "Can you see the dark the trees and the skipper wouldn 't be able to see him because he <laughs> He's got older eyeballs than me, and uh, he didn't turn his lights out or turn them out completely. That's what I would do. And uh, He had a good RO, too, and he stole my good RO. When his RO got taken by the admiral um, to be part of his staff, then he took my RO. <laughs> and then I had a teenager who didn't know what he, was do- what he was doing. He was right out of the Naval Academy. But anyway, um, so— uh, he He'd give you those coordinates, and he says, "See the, can you see the trees that are is just the south of where that intersection is?" and he'd say "Yeah, anywhere in those trees because it 's full of trucks uh, there and uh, and so forth. sometimes you'd get there and they would ha- you 'd see headlights, but rarely, rarely, uh, and as soon as they really hear you, they would run back to the truck and turn the lights off or turn the engines off, I guess." At any rate, um, and then you'd you'd do that. But, see, that thing there that you read early on, that was, was, uh, you know, when Lyndon Johnson uh, had his bombing pause in North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese took all the guns (laughs) that used to be in North Vietnam and put them over in Laos to guard the Ho Chi Minh Trail over there. So... um, uh, where was I the the uh, the guns and so forth
0: and uh, uh, Well, how often was, were you running a... into uh, like, you know, you mentioned the 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 anti-aircraft the flak that you're flying by Yeah, the surface air missiles. How how often did you run into that? Was that every mission every time? Every time but they were cool about that.
1: You see they you would get there Who was cool about the that? gunners on the ground <laughs> the, <laughs> the enemy gunners. Yeah what way well, they'd know you were there because they could hear you uh-huh. and uh, and uh, in your orbiting, what I would do immediately as soon as we get there i 'd separate an altitude i'd go a thousand higher on whoever was usually a rural gardener, but i'd go a thousand higher. And I cut across and, and turned. Every naval aviator is, an, is a left-hand turn expert. they all turn left. In fact, I, one time I met a guy in Philadelphia who had the same dog as I did, and I started talking with him. And, and then I saw him a second and a third time. He said, what would you do before you did the ad business? He said, I was a naval aviator. I said, son of a gun, so was I. How about that? So at any rate, I, in that office, it was street level, I had an old IBM computer, and I had the Microsoft flight simulator early on, a uh, version of that on, on that computer. I said, "You come inside and look at this thing. I, anyway, took it off, made it take off, and I turned right. And he said, what the hell kind of a naval aviator are you? in <laughs> 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 Ed, Ed, Sims. I can't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Sims, nice guy, nice guy. But at any rate, I would, turn, I, I, I would orbit to the right. And I knew that he was going to roll in from 1-8. I would roll in anywhere at the top of the, of the, the quadrant uh, of, the, of the
0: compass rows. So, so what, what made what the, what the gunners do cool? You said the gunners are well, cool. They, well,
1: they, you, they, you make yourself present because you're making all that noise right over here over mm-hmm. the crossroads. And they know, the gunners all know, this, the trucks are over there. And they know that. And they know that you know that because they can hear the fact flying around too. So uh, they would wait until you roll in, until you commit. Mm -hmm. The problem is they had to get a handle on you when you start down because they also know, I presume that they knew, because you're going to pull the power to idle and your engines get very quiet as soon as you do that. So if they didn't have a bead on you at that point, I'm convinced too that they used a simple auditory way to track you. I think my idea is that if you took a bunch of paper towel tubes and put tape around them and put a microphone behind them, and then you put that on the mount of a gun, We a gun that the barrel got overheated and it warped, so we got this gun mount over here. We don't use it. Put that auditory search finder Thing uh, on the gun, because then as soon as I turn it over there, and I can, hear oh, it. I got headphones on, and I can hear. It. There he is. Oh, and I lost him. No, I got them back again. But the point here is that the azimuth and elevation on that auditory device. If you have a simple system, you can. All the five guys have 57 millimeter or even 85 millimeter pieces around here. They can know. They know where you are because they can read what he is tracking you in an auditory fashion. So they wouldn't open up sometimes until you release, pull, and add power. And as soon as you did that, (laughs) yeah, there's shit going by from the back uh, and most of it right there. Because they had time to know where you were and they could hear you in orbit. And now this guy was over here, and suddenly he got silent. That means he's in the dive, so that means he's going to be over here. They truck, turn their guns around. Moreover, the guy with the auditory half a dozen paper towel tubes taped together, he can hear you uh, even if you've got your engines at idle I think Mm -hmm. that's my private theory I don't know if that's true or not but at any rate that's when they would open up on you and yes every night no question every night anytime you were there they would they would blast away at you uh, did you guys lose any aircraft while you were on deployment not my squadron no Uh, the ship lost I don't know four or five maybe more A7s no A6s Uh, A6 guys, I think, were pretty cagey. A7 drivers, they all tended to be, seemed to me, younger guys. In the wardroom, sitting there with a the guy I said, "Man, I had a hell of a time tonight. I was mixing it up with these guys. They had a 57 millimeter in a cave on the side of a hill. I don't know how they got it up there, but I made it. I came back around and gave them another load of 20 millimeter." I thought, "Really?" I said. You know, he's sitting that far across the wardroom table. I said, "Do you realize what the aim point is?" Oh, it's the airplane. I said, no, no, no. The aim point's right between your eyes. You're nuts. Put a 500-pound bomb into that hole. If you any good as a bomber, you can do that. Put a bomb into into his cave. That's the end of that gun. No, it's more fun. I went around a third time. and <laughs> I said, you're crazy. He's going to shoot you down. You're going to feel really stupid. You throw away your weapons, what you do when you get shot down. You have a responsibility to... One, in your book, you talk about things that are worth it and things that are not worth it. And I, I'll tell anybody who's willing to, including an old, my old skipper or somebody like that, I said, I have favorite switch position down by your left knee in the F 4. It's got all. <laughs> it, doesn't, it does all the bombs. Doesn't, oh, okay. You, not the missiles. The missiles stay, but the bombs, you have singles, pairs, doubles, cluster. All and and some and then all oh, flip all. Oh, this is bad here tonight. I don't want to be here. I'll be back tomorrow, but uh, for tonight, all. Oh, see if you can eat this load. There's only six of them for heaven's sake.
0: What six 500 pounders? Yeah, that, that's what, that was our standard bomb load six 500 pounders. As the deployment went on. And you're going out facing this every night, night after night. Is it every night? You flying every night? Yeah.
1: And when you were in the Gulf, you flew every night.
0: Uh, How's this wearing on you mentally? Uh, Not bad. I think at that
1: age, you're in your late 20s. I was in my late 20s. Mm -hmm. No, not a big deal. Except that. air conditioning on some ships was not very good and Constellation was one of them a the flight deck uh, <laughs> or the O3 level to
0: a Navy guy where that air conditioning pisses us off all the time on a ship. well how about
1: if you just had good ventilation <laughs> you know it, it, you have 85 degree air outside put 85 degree air in this room would <laughs> yeah, <it'll> be nice <laughs> you know and my my state room was um, the O3 level was the o, O4 level of flight down. So flight so uh, there are places in the ship where the, where the air conditioning really did work beautifully but we, we had we got visited by ABC or CBS News or mm-hmm. something like that and they were on the Hancock which was in the Gulf at the same time at that time and one of these guys said to me boy we could see this ship on the horizon You he said this ship is nice the Hancock but next week we're going down to get aboard the big guy Air conditioning doesn't work here, and the food's not real good. <laughs> Better on a Hancock in every way. I said, well, fortune's of war, I guess.
0: Yeah, we, I had a guy on the podcast uh, named Dean Ladd who's a Marine in World War II, and he went into a bunch of different islands, but he was talking, he's going into Tarawa, and <laughs> – I'm like, were you nervous going in? He said, no, it's the other guys that are going to get wounded and killed. And that's he right. Ed- he ended up getting gut shot in Tarawa and was lucky. A couple of his Marines disobeyed the order just to keep going, and they yep. grabbed him and threw him back on a ship. So I think that's the common the common mental state of the young man in combat. Is that's right. I really feel sorry for the other guys <laughs> that are going to have trouble out here and get wounded and killed.
1: My favorite professor in college, University of Chicago, Ph.D., it's a big deal. And Econ uh, was a tail gunner in B-17s in World War II. Jeez. And I used to play chess with him. And I said to him, "What was it like?" He said, "You always figured the other guy's gonna get uh-huh. it." Well, that's the same thing yeah. you just said. <laughs> 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 that's a pretty impressive statement for a tail gunner. In
0: B-17 in World War II.
1: He was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you know, always oh, fortunes of war. You figured the other guy's gonna." I mean, or you can always jump
0: out, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what, that would be
1: the worst of it, that you had to bail out.
0: Any other highlights from that deployment?
1: Well, I, 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 a Skipper said to me, um, we want to send somebody over to uh, Thailand. And uh, since you have Air Force experience, would you like to do it? Well, yeah, why not? And this is to be a forward air control or something? No, just to uh, make some judgments and come back and relate what how they do things over there and how the facts work and stuff like that. So I said, okay. And so they took me over in a, in a COD, and we did not get shot at in broad daylight. The COD went out in daylight, and we didn't get shot at uh, crossing or anything out into u is where I went, where Robin Olds was uh, when he made his five kills and stuff like that. And um, initially, hard to get to first base uh, there. I said, it, got, it was like in the movies. They, the cod pulled out onto the grass, and the crewman opened the back door, and I hopped out. I had shut down the starboard engine, and door slammed. starboard engine started up. Taxied away. I was standing there with my suitcase <laughs> on the grass. And I thought, this is just like a goofy movie from, from France in World War II or something. Anyway, so I, said, I got a guy, a trooper walking down the tarmac somewhere, and I said, Where's base operations? Down the street, but you don't want to go there. Why? Because oh, we're not allowed to be here. We're guests. Oh. Where do I go? Uh, building 386, it's on the second street over, and it has 386 on the outside, and I'm making this part up, but this is about the essence of it. That's the operations you want. So I went. I, I didn't have a place to sleep right anything in my little suitcase. So I went there, and I got a Marine, no, Air Force trooper, big guy, big guy with a sidearm at a little lectern, Inside the door, he said, basically, he says, "Who the hell are you?" I'm in a navy uniform and whatnot, <laughs> and he said, "Not without whatever he needed." Yeah, all right. So <clears throat> that night, I went to the club, and I meet a guy, uh, an air force major, and he said, well, yeah, "We can take care of you. We'll get past that. Don't worry about it." And he took care of everything and, and stuff like that. But their Air Force operations were officially just a guest, and they were just unofficially the, airplanes, the air the tarmac loaded with F 4s and C 130. So I got to fly with a guy uh, who flew the OV 10, which is a heck of a fun airplane to fly. Man, oh man, i swap ends in a second with that thing. I mean, this way, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Tons of power, two turboprop engines, and uh, designed for the Marines so you could put one and a couple of guys in the back and they open the hatch in the back and the Marines can parachute out into middle of nowhere and uh, stuff like that. And uh, and a good panel in the back. I made an instrument approach with that guy and he said, that's really something off that terrible panel back there. I said, yeah, well, you make about 100 passes at the ship at night and it's not a big deal anymore. <laughs> no. I flew with him uh, maybe twice, and I flew with the C-130 gunship, a C-130 uh, uh, forward air controller, only at night for him, though, because he's a big target, I guess. Mm. Um, but uh, We had flown off of that guy, but we didn't know what kind of airplane he had. And uh, let's see, the OV-10, and two times with the C-130, he was only there a week. Um, and uh, and then back out to the ship, uh, the, the C-130, no, C-47 had about eight or ten marine troopers who were there on R&R at Yuban, Thailand. They had been downtown and they all looked at <laughs> <laughs> a big night last night. I don't know where they wound up going, but they dropped me off at Hue. It was right after the Battle of Hue that destroyed everything. And they, and, they, and right next to the runway, there was a, a matte runway. And when we landed on that matte runway, they're shooting at us because it goes rattle, rattle, rattle. And I thought, my God, there's something. <laughs> but that's, it was just a plank runway. And then the Army was there. And I thought, boy, sandbags and logs and... Mud And oh, thank heaven, I have no part of the Army. And uh, anyway, they sent the COD in there, and the COD uh, picked me up and took me out to the ship. So that was the end of that. But that was uh, that was quite an experience. Um, those C-130 guys, they had cojones. Um, they, they've sacked their parachutes back over here and they have a pile back there. Really? What do you do if you get hit? Because in my mind, you get hit. You might take the whole wing off or the end of it, and then it starts to tumble, and you're not going to have time to put on a parachute. But they did. I think they lost more C-130s than they ever admitted to over there. Because the one I was on, a gunship, he's at 3,000 feet, and the 37-millimeter gets to to 30,000 feet. And a burst went off in front of the nose. And I hit the deck behind the, they have flight deck on that airplane. I was on the floor and we, as we flew through the smoke. And they said, what was that? I said, for heaven's sake, it went off right. Yeah, but it falls away. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but we flew through the smoke i saw the smoke go over the windshield you know so and I got to fly the c130 a little bit just steer it around mm-hmm. you know not a big deal but uh, anyway that's what I did in Thailand Then i came back to ship and the guy said what about this and what about that and that's when i saw those f4s making multiple passes from the same direction at 30 degrees at 30 degrees ang- uh, d- dive and not just f- the same direction but both airplanes from the same direction. so and, oh, Maybe you're losing airplanes and I, I think I know why. Mm-hmm. No talking them out of it. I think if you are encouraged to think that 60 degree angle of dive is dangerous, you'll believe it. Um, but it's not, it's safer, it's a better way to go. And when I saw that picture, I, I don't know if I said this now, there's a famous picture taken during the Battle of Midway. And that guy is virtually 89 degrees uh, above a Japanese carrier. So that's the way to do it, I thought. Besides, you've got to get the barrel all the way up there. Maybe you yeah. can't do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you get done with that deployment, um, head back to the States. Now it's, what, 1970? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're coming back to America now. Now you've got the... The protests and all this stuff going on was that? Are you seeing that? Are you aware of that? What's how's that impacting uh, you? Very much so, and uh,
1: I think you just get used to it. Uh, the thing that you wouldn't get used to, if you were a newly married guy, and that was me, and a lot of other guys too, uh, that they would call up your house and say, tell you that, tell you your little wife that you had been killed that night. Oh, uh, this is stateside. Uh, before you went to sea. Uh, very evil. That's, that's evil. That's, uh, and then, of course, we had there were a couple of ac- bad actions. There was a, a Navy cod, I think an old one, with a, a bunch of guys on board that crashed on San Clemente uh, before we sailed. And that was very bad, and it made my wife very squirrely. my young wife. Very There's a funny thing. There's a funny one here. I went to the East Coast. Uh, And um, I flew out to the East Coast, so then I have to ride back. So we're on a DC-4, C-40, 51 or God knows what, a four-engine, unpressurized Navy (laughs) transport. And uh, we get to Houston, and the guy says, Ah, we'll be here overnight because uh, the we the, the wasn't so on the, unth- the f- third engine or something that's not right. And so be prepared. We'll have it. It'll be ready by morning. So at any rate, we were supposed to be back at Miramar by 6 p.m., more or less. I sent her, called her or something from the East Coast, from Norfolk. So she calls the duty officer. And the white hat sailor, who's on duty too, he answers the phone. And she says, this is Mrs. Copel. Is my husband uh, going to be there tonight? Well, it's his ETA. And he says, oh, no, the airplane went down in Houston. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so now wait, it gets better than that. She figured she was a widow. What to do about this? The next morning, coming up the side of the building, or two guys with gold braid on their sleeves. She said, Well, this is it. Steal myself. They're going to tell me what happened. I walk in the door. <laughs> now, anyway, Ish. funny story.
0: And she still likes to tell it to her friends uh, from time to time. That's, oh, man. Um, so there is there's this 1970 you come home there's obviously a lot of division in america right um and and what do you end up doing when you get back well the the uh,
1: re-asked tom if he wants to stay or go and i said my father-in-law offered me a job so i'm gonna go and uh I had too many dead friends by that point too, and uh, I said I, I think I'll just get out. And they said, Well, we want to send you to be an ACM instructor at uh, Kingsville. And I said, I don't want to go back to West to Texas. It, I, I don't like that place. He said, Well, we could send you to Meridian, but it's only you know basic instruction. I said, That's for me. I, because a, a pal had told me that he got plowed back at Meridian. And it's really nice place, nice people there and everything. So I said, let me go to Meridian. And so they put me in Meridian, and I was an instructor there for my last something like 14 months. And I had good students and and students and so forth. And I wonder what happened to the best of them. I've never been. I've typed his name into Google. and. No, I had no one. You know, who knows? I had Marines, bloody old Marines, as one guy. I was his instructor, and then his pal, I flew with him a couple of times. They were recon Marines, which is uh, this Navy SEAL-level stuff. And I foolishly said to one of them at one point, this is really foolish, this is naive. I said, you get heloed into northern Laos, and... Uh, you get dropped off in the jungle, and you know you're going to be there for at least a week with plenty of ammunition. Really, what do you do? He said, well, we hunt for the North Vietnamese. They they train up there, and they're in the jungle, and they're easy to find because they smoke so much ganja <laughs> that you can smell them if they're upwind from you. Oh, really? So what do you do then? He said, well, you move, move around, so you are, in fact, downwind, and then you get close enough to them and you set up and uh, with your weapons and whatnot and um, you wait till dawn so they st- till they start walking around yeah then what do you do oh well kill them all <laughs> oh excuse me <laughs> I was a little naive there <laughs> but these are the, anyway uh, and the guy who was my student uh, I wonder what a, a nice guy both of them nice guys um uh, he would say to me, "Tom, we we're first name basis. Even Marine mm-hmm. Captain at that point. Tom, Tom, Tom. How do you do? How do you do a barrel roll attack? See that guy over there? Make a barrel roll attack on that guy, Rich. I'm not supposed to do that. You know that. <clears throat> Come on." <laughs> Make a big rolling thing on, on the, the student flying. The students never look around. <laughs> <laughs> He's flying over there. Hey, a big mock. Wow! Let me try it. <laughs> <laughs> you go away over here. He <laughs> off, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. That's angry. <laughs> or the other thing with him, you fly in the back cockpit. You, you, you have them set. All fighter planes or navy trainers have rear view mirrors. If you need rear view mirrors in a fighter plane. You're wasting your time. You are long gone. Uh, when I came back, or let's say half from halfway through the cruise, I, you become a nutcase in the cockpit. At least I did. I want to know everything that's on the horizon 360. That's the only way to s- genuinely be certain you're going to survive this thing and and stuff like that. So you become a minor nutcase <laughs> looking, around, looking around and looking around and so forth. And to which your young guy would say, how the hell do you fly the airplane if you're spending that much time? Well, you do, you get skilled at it, it's just time that you get better and better at doing it. But I would have them turn their mirrors so I could see their, this much of their face. Everything else is oxygen mask, helmet and oxygen mask. But I want to see this part of their. I want to see where they're looking. I don't want you to see you, Mr. Wilson, looking at the panel, I want you looking outside. Mr. Wilson, you're down in the panel again. I want you outside the cockpit here. Well, Mr. Coppell, I have trouble flying level. I said, I'd rather see you bumping around in a little off altitude than getting shot down later because it's that important and so forth. So I, with Rich Freeman, I would, like all of them, I'd have, so I'd see him trying to fly level and make, Mr. Uh, Rich, I want you to make a 30-degree angle of turn and roll, roll out a 2.7. Okay. And he's doing a little bit of this. And he starts to get red in here. It's a Marine getting angry and not good thing. <laughs> I said, Rich, don't get upset. You, remember I told you, you want to hold the stick with two fingers and trim off the pressure. Move it and then trim off the pressure. Two fingers, that's all you need. I really do it that way. Okay, what do I do? Come back 3 6. Okay, he comes back and he's getting redder. <laughs> I said, Rich, can you feel that in the airframe? Yeah, what is it? I said, That's me back here, <laughs> pounding on the pole. He's got it in the vice grip ah. with white knuckles and his elbow in here, trying to fly this thing. Light. Rich, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but. Anyway. You've got to relax, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, <laughs> uh, I think when you come back f- uh, and they're shooting at you and you get bored at night in bad weather, you're soaking wet and you're tired. So, Do you burn more calories? I think so. There was a study done before the Vietnam War. And they did it with A4s. And I bet you um, David knows about this. They, they asked these A4 guys to—oh, no, it was during, at the beginning of the F, uh, Vietnam War. That's how it would work. They put, had a recorder that um, put a pen mark on a, on a disk of paper. And then they wired these guys with sweat and, and lung uh, function and heart function and so forth. And they found out that just what they figured, you go in and feet dry and everything comes up and you get in the target area, comes up even higher. Get off the target area, comes down a little bit. Get feet wet, comes way down. And it was way up here in the target area. And then you talk to the ship and it goes up here, (laughs) that much higher. And Higher than the target area. Right. <laughs> because in the tar- at the ship, everything is right here. Whereas in the target area, it's fortunes of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm, good tactics, but to a certain extent, it's out of your hands. Mm-hmm. So you do your best. But if you're going to smack the ramp or do something bad like that, it's, it's right there in your hands. Uh, and that was A4s. So, yeah, you, you will burn more calories than your tired guy. Um, and then you stand around the right room and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> really?
0: <laughs> when did you quit smoking? You know, I'm right after that. I quit smoking. <laughs> uh, and how was your transition into the civilian life? Difficult. Because you are
1: used to a guy who says that he does that in civilian world's not that way uh, guy says can you loan me 50 bucks until next wednesday in the navy he comes looking for you in civilian world you got to go looking for him uh, <laughs> hey eddie give me my 50 bucks oh, i'll give you half of it it's all i have i say Uh, Yeah, It was a little bit rocky, and uh, I went in business for myself because my wife thought that might be a good idea for us, and uh, the antique Persian rug business of all things. So uh, I wound up making friends with a lot of Persian guys, most of them Jews. A couple of them I still know to this day. call them up saying, how the heck are you? A couple of Muslim guys, all nice people, um, you had to be because you were sort of all in that, like you know, being in the Navy, you were all in this mess together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, uh, uh, I figured in that business I had it. Because you have retail customers who uh, talk to you and say, I've been looking for a lesson so type. Do you know what that is? Oh, yes. I need it uh, 18 feet. But no longer than 19, and I need it, thus and so wide, and I don't want any wear, but I want more of this color, and so okay. can you do that? You get on as soon as I leave. You get on the phone, you call Mohammed, and you call Hakeem, and you call that guy. I'm saying, I have the, what you want, and he will give it to you on your signature, if your credit is good. So I figured. I called a guy one time, and he said. I don't have it, but I know who does have it. He's an old Armenian guy, and he's really crotchety, and he shouldn't be in business anymore, but uh, he's got some nice choice stuff. This is in New York, 28th Street, 31st Street, in that neighborhood, Fifth Avenue. And uh, I I said, I need this and that and this and that and this and that. Yes, yes. I I said, my credit, I said, you don't know me, but... uh, I have, I should call those and so and call him, and you could call him. I don't have to do that. I said, really? Why? I know who you are. <laughs> I could have it on my signature. So I drove away one time with 80000 in wholesale value in the back of my truck, and I figured that was a mistake. No signature. Mm-hmm. They know who I am. So I, but nice people. A lot of a lot of nice people. Not like what you read in the paper. Did you, know? you miss the Navy? Oh yeah, yeah. And a lot of pals and stuff like that. But uh, you have to get away from that. You can't live mm-hmm. in the past. You know. You gotta keep going. So, we had a lot of lot of. I keep saying this, but I had a lot of fun doing that too. So, and my, down to my wife. <laughs> I bought a, a piece for several thousand, and uh, I, ca- I came back I, maybe two days later, and I said, where's the uh, lozenge?" so? She said, I sold it. She said, I, said, I hope you got more than $5,600 for it. She said, I got 75 <laughs> <laughs> Is that what one of those rugs cost?
0: How much one of those rugs cost?
1: It depends on what it is, it depends on its age, it depends on its condition. You have to deal with somebody that you know is utterly trustworthy because uh, Henry Kissinger got fleeced on a trip to Tehran, and he knew it after it was all over.
0: <laughs> what happened to him?
1: I don't know exactly what the thing was, but he admitted to the fact that uh, all he did was— Take that load of stuff that I bought and send it to a dealer somewhere to get rid of it. Because it was
0: junk and he paid a bunch of money for it. it? It was very embarrassing, yeah. And then you ended up with the, with, in, in the bakery business, right? Bread making business? Is uh, that where you're at now? Uh, yeah.
1: Well, this is, this is Jocko saying, when you're in the middle of the woods, start walking. And the guy <laughs> says, which direction? And Jocko says, doesn't matter. Yeah, start walking. But I knew how to do that. So uh, Pamela said, why don't you make some bread? And uh, Pamela's brother is in, believe it or not, in the exotic mushroom business. And they have an outdoor farmer's market. These are common in Pennsylvania. On Sunday afternoons. And give them to Joe and see if he can sell them. He sold them all. Said, I'm doing it by hand. Uh, so uh, same thing again next week and so forth. And... He comes back and says, Fred says, you ought to take a table here. Your stuff is good enough. I said, holy smoke, but I can't only do so much by hand. So I had a guy that I did business, rug business with, antique rug If you find anything like that, Tom, call me. Oh, you do, and so forth. So I was coming. I, used to, I had to buy all the time, whatever you could. So I used to go to a lot of outdoor Country auctions, more, more country than anything else. And they had rugs from the 30s. And I drive to Altoona, as I did in this case, with, a, with my truck, Chevy van, no windows. And uh, I buy the rugs for $1,500. Because there's certain in human psychology, certain price levels in which a retail customer, knowing that you could pay more, but I won't do that because I don't want surprises and stuff like that. So you know you're going to get them for $1,500 if you drive all. Because you talk to the auctioneer and he tells you more or less what it is. And he thinks he knows and stuff like that. So you drive to Altoona you look at it and say, yeah, I'll, I, I can get 6000 for this. I won't pay more than, have to pay more than $1,500. And you do that. So I came back from Altoona that day to this guy's place. And he's in a secondhand equipment business, secondhand commercial equipment, mm-hmm. ovens and mixers and things like that. They go, they go on forever. And he said, uh, you, uh, you bake bread once in a while. And I, was, didn't, I didn't buy anything that day, and I had money in my pocket, cash in my pocket. He said, uh, he said i got a couple of nice ovens over here. I said, i not interested. He said, look at them. They're diner size. They're not the full size. You've got to find exactly the right guy <laughs> Probably a diner, but he already has. I'll sell him to you for nine hundred dollars. No, I don't want him. He said I can slide him right onto your truck, and he didn't know I had money in my pocket either. No.
0: Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe.
1: So he and I, uh, finally I said okay. So then I had to install him myself. On a, we live in an old Pennsylvania Dutch. I call him a. A Pennsylvania German soft brick drafty, and they have matching porches on both sides. And this porch is enclosed, so I put them on that porch and had heavy, you know, they weigh, I don't know, a thousand apiece, I guess, jacks and everything and blocks and getting it up and sliding it over and I installed both of them, but I didn't do very much until my sister-in-law actually said, you need to put bread with Joe at the skipack Farmer's Market on Sunday. So then one thing led to another, led to another. And then I went to this nice guy at Kimberton Whole Foods, who was at the time he had one store, and he was on the floor himself. And I said, "Uh, do you think you can sell these? He said, probably not, because uh, La Busse just bailed out of here. But you can put it on their shelves if you want. Came back the next day, and there was six of them sold. I said, can I put more? Of course. So one thing led to another. He has about maybe he has eight stores now, and I'm in five, four.
0: So about. you're making bread every day.
1: I work no. I work Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and, and I deliver on Wednesday what we I made on Tuesday Tuesday night and sliced Wednesday morning to deliver that. Then I work Thursday uh, and deliver that on Friday, and then I'm off Saturday, Sunday, Monday. But I got another racket going. What's the other racket? (laughs) When I ran for Congress, I don't know if you know I did this. I did know that, yeah. It was in your notes. Yeah. um, I was supposed to lose, and it was in a gentleman's agreement. You want uh, a guy who can lose gracefully. And I said, that's exactly right. And I said, okay. But I thought to myself, this guy, this congressman, he drinks a lot. And he may get hit by a truck or have the your classic too much alcohol heart attack or something like that. This is the only chance I'll ever get. So I, I did. I, I think I put it in there. I, I did ring 10,000 10, doorbells. Mm-hmm. I really did. It's, it gets to be fun after a while. You meet new people. Mm-hmm. And moreover, they ask you questions privately that you hadn't quite thought through. And after you fumble around with that, you say, I won't fumble around with that a second time. And it turns out the next two days later, a guy asks you the same question. I'm like, Maybe You're ready. You're ready for it. Mm-hmm. So uh, after that, and he spent 10 times what I spent. A U.S. congressman, I was told, will do anything to stay in office, anything. So at any rate, he spent 10 times what I had to spend. I had $35,000 to spend, and he spent 350 dollars but anyway, um, and he wouldn't debate me either. Um, he finally went to this silly thing on—he uh, was in D.C. because he couldn't quite return, which is baloney. He was from the county north of where we live. But at any rate,
0: um, uh, it, what was I going to say that— uh, Well, you was, it had to do with your racket that you're running, your other racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was
1: a, I was a stockbroker. At that point, okay. uh, because of my when I had my subdural hematoma, they cut a hole in your head, they take a piece out, out of your head because I slept and fought about that, what I call it in there. Uh, you're John Glenn. John Glenn fully recovered, and so have I. But a lot of people don't. Uh, I think too. It's a matter of wanting to and deciding to recover because you. With my case, my right side, didn't, it was on my left side, and it's true. Your left side didn't work right, and, or worked a little bit, but not real well. And I couldn't walk right and stuff like that. And, um, anyway, uh, so at any rate, I, I, uh, I, how had you get the, the registrar? I am, I am the Pennsylvania Registrar for Births and Deaths in Oley Township, 06 Township, and for several surrounding townships. If you die, you need a will. And to have a will, you need an executor who, dis- who distributes, but you have to prove, have somebody prove, this guy is dead, not just gone to South America and so forth. So you make certified copies of his death certificate, s- issued by, generally by the hospital or, or the coroner, and uh, that way your executor or the man or woman's executor can probate the will and so forth and all that. So at any rate, a year after, yeah, maybe 10 months after I lost the election, I get to talk with a guy named Bob Asher, who was a little bit of a character and well-known in Pennsylvania politics because he took the heat and went to jail for something he didn't do but to probably to protect a Pennsylvania senator or maybe one of the governors, I don't know. But he took the heat, and everybody agrees that Bob never did anything. But he owns a candy company called Asher Candies, and it's well-known chocolates in eastern Pennsylvania. And there he was at this affair. So I went up to him, and I said, Bob, you owe me one. He said, get out of here. I said, you know who I am. Oh, don't know who you are. I said... Uh, I rang 10,000 doorbells. Yeah, I heard about that. I said he had to spend 350000 to beat me. Yeah. Bob, we both know what that means. He would have spent 35000 against the guy in Fayette County. He would have spent 58000 at the guy in Pittsburgh. He would have spent 102000 in the guy in the Harrisburg race. He spent it all to beat me. Yeah, so what? Bob, you owe me one. (laughs) A week later, a local guy that I knew very well, who holds political office, called me up and he said, how'd you like to be register of wills? What in the hell is that? (laughs) So I said, yeah, that's right. How much does it pay? Well, you won't make much. You can make 35000 doing it. You can. But at any rate, uh, they're trying to get rid of the Pennsylvania Registrar. Now I'm just sticking on because I figured I'd break right down to the last day. <laughs> so at any rate, that's how that happened. So well, I was a stockbroker. And if you start late in life to be a stockbroker, you don't have much of an account. And... Uh, and stuff, and I got to be a certain age, and I said to my wife, this is, this is not cutting. I've got to do something else. And right after that, my uh, sister-in-law came to me. and She's a German national. You wouldn't know it. She has zero accent. She said, you sell bread that's good enough to sell in Germany. You need to do this. And I was still doing it by hand, and one thing led to another there. So that's what I do now, and it, I'll tell you what. Keeps you in shape. You're not going to get fat doing this unless you want to.
0: <laughs> I suppose you've got to make sure you don't get too much of your own product, though. That's true. <laughs> Just like the drug dealers. No, no, no. I, I say to
1: people, people in stores say, oh, I don't eat much bread. I say, it's, it's not the bread. It's what you put on it. The, too much mayonnaise or too much strawberry jam is <laughs> what you do with it, not, not the, uh, the
0: stuff. Well, uh, what's the name? So what's, where can people get your bread? Um, You got a shipment of it. Oh, I got I know, but I'm not going to be going to the The, grocery market very often in (laughs) Pennsylvania. The Ole Baker. The Ole Baker. O-L-E-Y, yeah. That's an Indian
1: name for the valley in which we live. eh? The Indian name for it was Olinka, and that got shortened by the... Uh, the locals at that time, way back. Benjamin Franklin did not like to come up to that county. He said, there were too damn many Germans up there. I don't like to go up there. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good horseman in his uh, middle age. We all see Ben Franklin as a big, fat old guy, oh, uh, a yeah. fat old man, but uh, he was an expert, expert uh, horseman, and, and people did not like to travel with him. Oh, I read an account of him going to York PA, which is west of uh, Ersberg, uh they didn't like that with him because he would take off over land to basically explore the landscape and whatnot. And uh, they were all afraid he was going to either fall off or get killed by the locals, the Indians, uh, so they thought, and then we're going to have to go look for him and find him. And the, the, some of the folks out there don't like us very much and so forth. So people did not like to go traveling with him. But he was an expert in overland horseman. But we all see him as the, the fat old guy.
0: Who, yeah, uh, that's, the, that's the image he got stuck with at some yeah, point. Right. I know you— uh, you know, you wrap up your, your bio that you sent to Dave, and it says, 2022, still having fun. Heck yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Uh, I don't know. Did we miss anything? Get us up to date? There's one
1: thing I thought about on going By. Now, now it escapes me. Uh, same marriage, married to the same woman. I This is during the political campaign. They would ask you, I said, still married to the same woman. Since... Uh, Age 27, wow. so I got married a little bit late.
0: And it was your daughter that brought you here, yeah. And, and linked yeah. us up. I think she linked us up on social media.
1: Yeah, there was an elder daughter, Genevieve, and uh, she wanted to come with me, but she is in a job that she doesn't like, and she's intensely searching. So the other daughter said, "I'll take him out," and she had not actually said. She said, "If you go, I'll buy my own ticket." Okay. Oh, so I, then I said to you, "I will not travel alone. I will travel with my wife." Oh, OK. So then Pamela said, "I don't want to go. We have an ancient puppet dog here, and she's going to die. So well, we, we ought to euthanize her. I can't do that.": <laughs>
0: <sighs> That's the pragmatic solution, yeah. apparently.
1: <laughs> so younger daughter said, "I'll go with him, so uh, she is here. Uh, today in San Diego, and elder daughter is uh, angry, but I said, Jenny, um, (laughs) what you're doing is more important, and uh, she's working it. She got into the medical world, most specifically into transplants, and she said, if Jocko says anything to you, ask him if he is a uh, organ donor, because he he should be, everybody should be. I am. Yeah, so I'll tell her that. <laughs> but at any
0: rate. She's going to know. Apparently everyone's going to know now.
1: I said, but the thing about Jenny, the thing that people want is something you can do that most people can't. You can pe- keep six balls in the air at the same time, so to speak. And that's why these guys in the transplant business love you so much because they could say, oh, I don't know about that. Ask Jenny. And she had the answer. Or this guy. Computer thing is screwed up and it and it's off the thing and it won't work. And say, call Jenny; she can do that, and she does. There you go. So the younger daughter; they have their uh, she and her husband have their own business, so uh, it's not easily done for them. Nice. Although they're very serious and they do well, so that's the the whole thing there. It was something
3: else. That Dave, what do you got? <laughs> oh man, I got a lot. Oh, but that, I know we We're kind of around I've been taking a lot of notes. Um, I just, I'm remarking at how many similarities there are, and I just started writing things down. I was stationed at Meridian. I was stationed at Kingsville. I was in LSO. I have about 40 traps in the Connie early in my career. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, I did the spin rides in the T2, and I knew you were a spin instructor. I know that well. I it's
1: fun. I said it's, one of those things, I said, it's a great carnival ride. A good, but so many a guys, guys would not do it. And I used to say, that the student didn't know who I was. I'll, I'll be doing your spin hop today. And you're terrified. Well, no, Mr. Coppell, but I thought that. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many guys have you been punched out on spin hops? Oh, I don't know. No one. It's a carnival ride, and so forth. So I, and Fred didn't want to, I, I, make, gives me the, I don't like to do, I'll do them, I'll do them for you. So I, I would do a lot of the spin-offs and meridian. It's a carnival ride. Not much instruction goes on that day, except for the rote. All right, Mr. Smith, we establish the direction of rotation and uh, we will positively neutralize the controls and then uh, we'll apply full opposite rudder. And when the rotation stops, we will uh, put stick full forward and so forth. Yeah, that's all you do. And then, okay, fine, we got that. Now we're going to climb back up. You have to do it again? Yeah, we're going to do it again, too. <laughs>
3: Oh, I remember it well. Some of the best rides yeah, ever. Yeah. Um, my time with the Air Force. And then you kind of concluded with a couple of things that I just couldn't help make the connection to. Living on the 03 level in the stateroom underneath the catapults. <laughs> and then, God forbid, I am on a podcast where I don't have to say something nice about Navy SEALs. <laughs> but you worked for a, a frogman. And got to yeah. see what 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 real good leadership looked but like. But you know
1: what, he let's talk about leadership just a second. He was not well thought of, mostly by the younger guys who are ROs and in, in the <laughs> fleet squadron I was in. He never does anything, and well, he'd talk, and and they would say not nice things about him. I don't think any of the front seat guys said that. What a surprise! But yeah, but, <laughs> but the the back seat guys, they're all young and. Uh, Lieutenant Junior Grades, all of them solid. And most of them retired as commanders. I don't know what the heck they got them to do to stay in the the Navy that long. But at any rate, they didn't like him because they couldn't understand what he was doing. I think the front seat guys all really understood what was going on there.
3: Well, Mm -hmm. I think there's a real strong connection between pilots and SEALs. I got to learn that firsthand working with Jocko. But you did it at a time time where you, you didn't have the machines that we had. I mean, you flew an airplane that, I guarantee you, was infinitely harder than it was for me. Yeah. But it occurred to me that the the legacy that I got to live under, the 35 years of history, was written about people like you. And <laughs> when, I got in the, when I got in the Navy and the Marine Corps, how we flew fighters and the way we taught people to fly fighters was already embedded. And that all started w- yeah. with your generation. So,
1: Well, you know, that's what I was thinking about in that. Dan Pedersen and mm-hmm. and the book, that wasn't called Top Gun until maybe, I don't know, three, four, five years later. Somebody mm-hmm. said Top Gun. But the F 4 didn't have a gun. And I don't th- and And all your newspaper guys, they'll say, well, it had to have a gun. And they finally did the F 4E and had a gun in it. Finally. No. The missile was a better weapon every time, every time. You had to be within 3,000 feet to do anything with a 20-millimeter gun. I shot the gun at Kingsville. We all did. I was bad at it, too. I don't know. They, they put your colored paint on your uh, – your yep. and and then they examined the banner. And said, there said, no greens on here. What happened to you, Tom? And, Embarrassing, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm supposed to have holes in there. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, uh, I don't, I utterly disagree with that business about if any sort of a fire plane, you have to have a gun. Baloney. Now, early on, sparrows didn't work because white hat sailors would drop them and chuck them up into the bottom of the airplane. And they, they didn't test them. To see, make sure this is working and things like that. And then the aviators didn't turn the panel on and to see if the missiles, they called it tuning, that the missiles would tune and things like that. And then if one didn't tune, you could flip past that to go to the number two um, and so forth and fire that one. Forget about the first one. But then you could do one more thing that came out during Top Gun that nobody during Advanced Fighter Weapons School. <laughs> If you went to bore sight, tell the guy in back cockpit, go to bore sight, the, the antenna goes where the, the pepper is, uh, through the 35 mm gun sight is looking. They're both looking at the same place. And that's what I was gonna do with the 21. Go bore sight, pull the trigger, <laughs> and, and you'd get a Sparrow, which is a monster missile, five, weighs 500 pounds. A sparrow, the ones we had anyway, the E-models weighed 500 pounds. <clears throat> but anyway, um, it wasn't called fighter weapons school uh, back then. Oh, yeah. So the, fight, the thing you read in Dan Pedersen's book, who remains a nice guy, uh, but I would say this to him in a collegial way, most of the airplanes shot down in World War I, in World War II, in Korean War, in the Vietnam War. Never saw the guy that shot them down. They never saw the missile that shot them down. I know, I knew, guys who came out feet wet out of North Vietnam and saw the missile go by. The B-model missiles, the, the missile the Russians had, they stole it from us and shipped it through Berlin on commercial freight. And it didn't guide that well, at least the Russian version of it didn't. It had a big seeker head on it, and and, and it didn't narrow its sight. But I talked with guys who said, I I saw the missile go by, and I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Holy smoke. Most guys who got shot down, and I heard this early in the cruise, not until I was um, out there and... You get fully realized that they use real bullets here and stuff most ninety five percent of the airplanes that get shot down get shot down, and they never saw the the- whatever did it to them. They never saw it. one time we were in Laos somewhere it doesn't matter where waiting for the fact and he said. 14, now I'm at 15, he's in a port orbit and I'm in a starboard orbit or, and we're just waiting quietly and here comes an F4, you can tell because it has at the wing roots and the leading edge of have two flashing white lights, that's an F4 and he comes flying by and he gets to about where we are. That's where there are guns on the ground because that's where there are truck park and that's where the FAC is going to meet us. And those gunners can hear us up overhead. But here comes this guy over the horizon, an F-4. (laughs) (laughs) At this guy, probably 57 at least, maybe 85 millimeter. And he's still got his lights on bright and flash. And he disappeared over the horizon bright and flash. Did you go get close to him? Well, not that close because they were shooting at him, but I went close enough, I could see. That is an Air Force F-4. It's not some, some Navy guy who's lost or something. It's Air Force F-4, and he never knew it. Mm. Oblivious to everything with his lights on bright and flash. It's a true story. So uh, my point here is that Top Gun is, or what they call now Top Gun, It's very interesting if you go one-on-one. You both start from here. You turn and start with a head-on pass and so forth. One guy is better than the other, and he gets behind the other. But that's not what happens. What happens is the guy that you were picking your nose for some reason or other, and the MiG-21 showed up or a MiG-26 or God knows what it is, and he shot you down from three miles astern because you were picking your nose. You've got to be a wild man in that cockpit if you don't want to get shot down. You've got to know everything that's going on, 360 degrees all the time. So you turn into a crazy man, and you fly with a new RO. He said, you're really nuts. Yeah, I'm still here, too.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's all I got, man.
0: So at any rate, I beg your pardon, I interrupted
3: Not at all. That's That's, right.
0: That's probably a great place to wrap it up right there. All right. (laughs) That's a great attitude to have. Um, Thank you so much for coming out here. It was fun. (laughs) really (laughs) appreciate it. it. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for sharing your experiences, lessons learned, um, and, of course, most important, thank you for your service. Oh, baloney. So, thank you for your shade. service in the Air Force and, <laughs> and and your service in the Navy. Uh, and most of all, thank you for your service to our great nation. Amen. Thank you, sir. And with that, Tom Copel has left the building. Uh, pretty awesome to hear from a dude that, as you were telling me in, uh, before we hit record, Dave, in the middle of the Vietnam War, just volunteers to go and fly, you know F four Phantoms. That's the pipeline too. So, pretty amazing to hear these guys. I thought it was actually pretty interesting about the nuclear war stuff too. Yeah, you know, like what 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 are you thinking? What you you know? I like I was in the SEAL teams, and I was like, hey, we might do a mission in the nineties. Like, hey, we might do a mission. We might go, you know. Kill a terrorist. This dude's like, "Hey, we might go and end humanity." Yeah, you know that's a.
3: I remember when I first started flying airplanes. What you really want to do is you actually want to you want to do something. You want to drop a bomb. You want to get in a fight. That's what you want to do. (laughs) And there's a double edge to that because you know, like, well, I mean, we don't want to go to war. It's not a good thing. But if you do, you like, you want to get the call. The only thing you're ever gonna do when you're you know, strategic air of command with nuclear weapons in a B-52, you get that call like, that's a different psychology about what your job is. Yeah. You know, And I could see someone like him getting pretty restless doing strip alert all day, knowing it's kind of unlikely. And even if it did work out, like what are you actually doing there? That's, that's not a scenario you wanna be in no matter what, so.
0: Yeah, crazy. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, thanks for listening. If you wanna support the podcast, you wanna support yourself, Get yourself some Jocko Fuel, JockoFuel.com. You can get these these drinks we're drinking right here. Get yourself some Afterburner Orange, the tasty flavor. Milk, um, going ham on the milk. We got we got ready to drink milk now. People are kind of going crazy with that stuff. I'll tell you what's what I, what's what I find. uh look, just like every other freaking American. The convenience of just cracking one of those open and drinking it. Look, how much effort is it for me to get out my get out my milk, get out my shaker, put my milk in there, shake it. You know that has to take me at least three minutes. Or I got that little ready to drink hitter, just ready to you know take some. The other thing I find about it is you can just you it's so effortless that you can just open one up. Like I have. I have a part of my fridge where I have one of each kind of opened where I'll just go like take a sip, take maybe two or three sips, you know, just during the day, just a flyby. Um, so there you go. Molk, all the joint stuff. You know what, you know what it is. Um, You can get it, jockofuel.com. You can get it at the Wawa, get the drinks at Wawa, get it vitamin shop, Um, go get some support, Origin USA. I saw Cam Haynes today posted, Cam, is teaching Tulsi Gabbard how to shoot a bow, and they're wearing Origin Hunt, man. How legit is that? Pretty awesome. So check out OriginUSA.com. We're making stuff in America. Jeans, jujitsu geese, boots, T-shirts, rash guards, all 100% made in America. So get some of that. We got a store. Echo called it Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. Get T-shirts. What are you wearing? Oh, that's a legit one. So, Dave, right now, if you're not on YouTube, Dave's wearing the Sea Wolves T-shirts, 1966 to 1972. The only aviation unit ever commissioned and decommissioned in a combat zone. We've had some Sea Wolves on the podcast. There's a T-shirt to represent the Sea Wolves. Uh, you can get that at Um, we also got rash guards and hats and beanies and all that kind of stuff. We got the shirt locker. Shirt lockers, it's a little opportunity for us to express kinda, let's say some deep <laughs> layers to the podcast and it's a subscription thing. You get a shirt a month and they're cool. We got this podcast, subscribe to it. Jocko Underground, we're doing the Underground podcast which is also a platform that we have that we control. Because if you're not in control of a platform, you should be nervous that they could kick you off that platform. So I was nervous about that. Now, look, I'm not trying to get kicked off. I don't think I'm going to get kicked off. We're not getting crazy over here. But there are certain things I've said that have been uh, demonetized. So... Who knows when they're gonna say, yeah, you can't say that anymore. So we have our own platform, jockounderground.com. Check that out, YouTube channel. Jocko Podcast is the YouTube channel. Origin USA also has a YouTube channel. We've got Psychological Warfare. we got Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. Got a bunch of books. Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. Final Spin. The audio book of Final Spin, Dave and I did like a Q&A from Final Spin. At the at, So after the book, you can do the Q&A. You can listen to that Q&A. Pretty cool. The background of where it came from. I can tell you where it's going. That thing's making moves. <laughs> I'll leave it at that for now because it's hard to get these things done. But uh, anyways, written a bunch of books. Warrior Kid books. Just about, I have a gym, Victory MMA and Fitness. And just about every day, a parent will come up to me and say, thank you for those books. That got my kid to focus in school. Got my kid here to start training jujitsu. jiu-jitsu. Got my kid to stop eating junk. So check out those books for your kids. Way of the Warrior Kid series. Mikey and the Dragons. Hackworth, About Face, Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy of Leadership. All these books. You know I've I've written them. Get them if you want them.
3: Echelon Front. What's Echelon Front, Dave Burke? Echelon Front is our leadership consultancy where we... You me Leif and the whole team get to actually in person live talk about every single leadership principle You've been talking about on this podcast and in the book we get to do it with companies and people all the time. It's It's awesome. And what about the Academy? Oh the Academy the extreme ownership Academy it turns out that Meeting people live and in person isn't always the most convenient way to do it and bringing people off the line or bringing people into a conference room or a Classroom every single day is not a great way to train. We want to keep people working but the academy takes basically everything we teach, puts it online so you can get to it whenever and however you want to. And it's an awesome additional resource. It's basically be able to hit that leadership gym every day whenever it's convenient for you. So we got the academy.
0: Yeah, just like Jiu-Jitsu, there's moves you gotta learn. There's moves you've gotta learn about leadership. And just like jujitsu, you can't just look at a move and hear it one time and be like, oh, cool! I'll throw this Uma Plata on somebody now. This is not gonna work. You gotta... You gotta fully understand it. You gotta see it from different angles. You gotta try it yourself. And that's what the that's what the academy is: extremeownership.com, if you wanna get in on that. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, you wanna help Gold Star families, uh, check out Mark Lee's mom. Mama Lee, she's got a charity organization, does incredible stuff. Does incredible stuff, takes service members. This is one of the one of the things that she does. She takes service members who have significant health issues, and she gets them treatment. It's a multifaceted treatment. One of the big treatments is hyperbaric chambers. So you're going in, riding the I- O2. She sets this up for like thirty or forty five days, all expenses paid. So. And and we've seen the results of this is just outstanding. So if you wanna donate or you wanna support that, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And also don't forget about Micah Fink, who's taken vets up into the wilderness to heal through adversity, which is pretty awesome. heroesandhorses.org. And if you wanna follow us on Twitter, on Graham, on the Facebook, Dave is at David R. Burke. I'm at Jocko Willink. Watch out for the algorithm. Uh, Thanks once again to Tom Copel for making the trip out, for sharing those experiences and lessons learned from your life. Pretty neat to hear this stuff first person. Um, Thanks for your service. Thanks for coming out. And thanks to all our military personnel with a special recognition today to those of you that help us own the skies, the pilots, the navigators, the air crews, the maintenance and mechanics on the ground, and the thousands of support people that make our domination of the air possible. Thank you for what you all do. And thanks as well to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders. Thanks for what you do here on the home front to keep us safe and I want to close this out with uh, another quote a quote from Captain David McCampbell United States Navy 34 air victories in World War II, the most of any US Navy pilot ever and he said this quote aggressiveness was a fundamental to success in air-to-air combat And if you ever caught a fighter pilot in a defensive mood, you had him licked before you started shooting, end quote. So there you go. That just doesn't apply to -to air-to-air combat. It applies to everything. That's how you win. So get out there. Be aggressive. Make things happen. And, of course, keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Dave. And Jocko, out.